The Accidental Entrepreneur is produced by Beinhacker Law and brought to you through our affiliate relationships with the following sponsors. One of One Productions, the New Jersey-based podcast studio that produces and edits both audio and video podcasts. They sell equipment for the average podcaster and have even created a guesting kit exclusively for our listeners. North Authentic, the conscious hair care marketplace offering the cleanest brands from around the world. The Healthy Place, the e-commerce site with thousands of supplements to help you live a healthier life, along with natural solutions for chronic pain, stress, anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and much, much more. And be sure to support the podcast by ordering some logo merchandise from our online store. Listen to all of our sponsors' commercials later in this episode and follow their links in the show notes to learn more about their products and services. In my own mind, I guess I created a new category of right. investing. Didn't even realize it at the uh, time. Uh, but when I when I finally left McKinsey, I, I I had again no money. I didn't even have business cards. I certainly didn't have an office. Uh, I didn't have any clients, and I didn't have any investors looking for deals. Right. So this is not how you'd recommend most people no. start out their entrepreneurial career with no job, no money, right. no wherewithal, nothing right. in writing, right. just wing right. it. Right. Which and, is not what this podcast is. And and. And back then, I was totally clueless about the importance of networking. Right. Because I had never done it. I never had to do it. I was never responsible. It wasn't as common a term as it is No. Today. Back then, nobody talked about it. There weren't networking groups. There weren't networking books. Right. I had virtually no successful experience developing new relationships. You know, it's funny because, the, as I told you, the name of this podcast is called The Accidental Entrepreneur. You, like, became an entrepreneur by accident. You might have been the first accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> right. That's how I got all these gray hairs. <laughs> the information provided in these episodes is for entertainment purposes only. It is not a guarantee of success or to be construed as advice of any kind. You should always seek advice from local licensed professionals before making any decisions. The dictionary defines an entrepreneur as a person who organizes and manages any enterprise, especially a business, usually with considerable initiative and risk. People often start a business without much choice, perhaps due to a job loss or just being dissatisfied at work, and they come up with an idea they just know can be successful. They become entrepreneurs by accident. That is to say their success or failure happens by accident, not with intention. My name is Mitch Beinhacker. I'm a corporate attorney and a business advisor. You're listening to The Accidental Entrepreneur, my podcast about how to achieve success on purpose, not by accident. Join me along with our monthly guests where we share our knowledge and help you get a hold of your business. And now on to today's episode. This episode is a re-release of the first two episodes that I ever recorded in February of 2019 with my good friend Jack Killian. Jack unfortunately left us and died on November 5th, 2021, and he's been sadly missed. And I think it's important to continue to share his story, to share his knowledge, and to share his ideas. Jack was not only a friend, but he was, an, he was a mentor, he was an advisor, and I hope that you continue to find his knowledge and his guidance to be helpful as you continue your journey in entrepreneurship and in business. We miss you, Jack. Hi, I'm Jack Killian, and I define and position myself as an entrepreneur, a growth strategist, an educator, and an author 
And that means I basically devote myself to developing organizations and developing people. On this episode, Jack Killian from NetworkAllTheTime.com joins me to share his story, his experiences, and advice for anyone looking to network and grow their business. Jack is an Ivy League graduate who started consulting with and helping entrepreneurs and startups back in the 1960s, when a lot of these terms, networking, startups, entrepreneurs, didn't even exist, or at least were not well known by the general public. Well, Jack, um, welcome to the Accidental Entrepreneur. Thanks for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be here, Mitch. This is an opportunity to share some of my uh, thinking and insights with your audience. Uh, I appreciate it, and I'm sure our audience will appreciate it as well. So I want to get into what you're doing you know, now with your book writing and your coaching and all that stuff. But before we do that, let's take a step back so people can learn about your, your, your background, your history. So where were, where, where were you born and raised? I, I was born in Newark. Both parents are blue-collar people. Early in my uh, life, I moved to uh, Caldwell, New Jersey, and I uh, watched my dad try to develop his own business as a tool and die maker. So I grew up with uh, entrepreneurship in my DNA. Okay, that's so that's that's interesting because I was I wasn't born, but I moved to West Caldwell, New Jersey, in 1971, which probably was a little past your time. S- small world. Though. <laughs> Were you, when as a child or as a teenager, were you into business then? Did you have businesses? Were you a bit of an entrepreneur or not really? Not, not really, but I was uh, always involved with my father and his efforts to bootstrap his little tool and die company. So that's what he did? He had a tool and die a company? tool and die company. Okay, so for those people out there listening, what, what is a tool and die company? It's a company that made small, uh, basically made parts for larger organizations, contracted manufacturing company which eventually evolved into a business developing and manufacturing plastic extruding equipment. And the company became Killian Extruders. So they made the equipment. Made the equipment. Made the plastic parts. Right. And, and you had a relatively uneventful childhood? I mean, relatively no hardships, uneventful. nothing like that? No, not really. Okay. And then, uh, so then you went well, off to college, right? Went to public high school in Caldwell. Okay. James Cole High School. James Cole High School. I graduated in 1985. There you go. Different classes. Right. I was fortunate enough to be able to get into Yale. So I went to undergrad undergrad to study mechanical engineering. And back then, uh, Yale was in the dark ages. No women students. Most of the students were from uh, high-end private boys' schools. Right, the boarding schools, right? Yeah. So I came out of a public high school in the first week I was at Yale. They suggested I transfer because they didn't think I had the background <laughs> coming from a public high school. You or Andover, right, one right, of those right, schools, right? Right, So I really had to bust my chops over the next four years. But I survived. I wound up near the top of my class in mechanical engineering. So that, that would be a Bachelor of Science you ba- would get, Bachelor right? of Science in mechanical engineering. Okay, and then where did you go on from there? I went immediately uh, on to MIT, to the Sloan School, okay. Sloan Business School, where I got my master's. Right, one of the top in the country. My, my MBA. I had taken so many extra courses at Yale that I actually graduated from MIT in a semester less than normal. And while I was at MIT, I was recruited by a British firm, British tech company. They were looking for one American MBA student to go to London to help them set up a management consulting team in London to work with their divisions in Europe. And I was lucky enough to get the offer. So the day I graduated from MIT, I jumped on an airplane. And I was working in London the next day for a British company. And that was really only three and a half years in, right? Because you graduated in December. Right. 
Okay. But so what was it? Do you remember the name of that company? Sure. Elliott Automation. It was a public tech company. Okay. Very diversified uh, portfolio of companies. And I worked out of their London office for about the first year I was with them. We developed a consulting practice. And one of the divisions I was working with as a client division was manufacturing computers and running uh, computer service centers in Europe. Okay. And uh, This was a client of the, the company. This was one of their divisions. Oh, one of their divisions. One okay. of their divisions. And at the time, this was just when computers were getting going. Right. So, Elliot was the second largest computer manufacturer in Europe, only behind IBM. And, and you never heard of them here? Never heard of them. Well, back then you might have heard of them Maybe, here. Maybe, right. So, uh, after spending some time consulting with this one division, it was clear they didn't have the right leadership. To make a long story short, the head of Elliot Automation asked me if I would take on the role of trying to run and straighten out the division. And you, you were how old at that point? Early early 20s. I, I, rec- young. I recommended against it. I said, yeah. you know, you're going to have a revolt in the organization. I said, plus, I'm a kid. Right. I'm a kid American in the organization of senior And you had been there how long at that point? A year and a half. Okay, so not very long. They came back to me a couple of days later and they said, no, we reconsider. We'd really like you to do this. Okay. So I took on the role of being the managing director of this division that was uh, manufacturing computers and running service centers in, in Europe. So you were like 23 years yeah, old or something like that, Yeah, 23, 24 right? years old. Okay. In the meantime, I'd come back to the States for a long weekend, got married, took my wife back over there. She had never been out of the country. I assume you knew her before that. You I, just I, meet her in a yeah, weekend. No, no. <laughs> we went together through high school. So I was able to get Judy a job as assistant to the head of the British Computer Society. And we were having a grand old time. And, and I had actually made real progress in turning the business around when I got drafted into the Army. Ah. So well, uh, even though you were working there, you're still eligible for the draft yep. the American citizen. And, uh, and they just got me a few weeks before I was 26 years old. You would have avoided it. I would have avoided it. So okay. I had no choice. I had to come back to the States. What year was that? It was in the uh, early 60s, mid-60s. So this was what, Vietnam? Yeah, Vietnam. Vietnam. Okay. So I came back to the States the day I arrived back in uh, New Jersey. I was shipped right down to Fort Dix, and I spent the next two years as a private in the Army. They assigned me to the uh, Frankfurt Arsenal down in uh, Philadelphia, where they uh, positioned me as assistant and head of the Army's metrology and calibration mission which is the equivalent of the National Bureau of Standards for the Army. Right, but you didn't have to go see combat because you no. came out of MIT, you had an engineering degree, they needed your intellect, right. they're not sending you out on the front line. Right. That was good. When they asked me what kind of role I want to play in the Army, they, they give you options. I said I want to be a, a military police, but that turned out not to be the case. <laughs> So, okay, so then you spent two years in the Army, right? Two years in the Army, except in the Army you get 30 days of leave time. Okay. So I decided not 30 to, days, what, a year? A year. Okay. So I decided not to take any leave time so I could accumulate 60 days at the end of my... So uh, then you only had to do 22 months. 22 months. So uh, I started looking for a job about six months before I was through to get right, out. Right, so Elliot wasn't holding your position to come back. You got No, I, I could have. I, I, I'm sure I could have gone back. But once I was gone for two years and back in the States and entrenched here, I, going I, back I wasn't going to go back. It's, I think it's often tough to go back in your career. Right. So I started looking for a job maybe six months before I got out of the Army. And I managed to wind up with an offer from McKinsey. 
which oh, I sure. think is one of the top management consulting firms in the world. Still today. Still today. Right. And uh, so I figured out a plan where I could essentially leave the Army prior to being discharged. I would work Monday through Friday with McKinsey, get back to Frankfurt Arsenal by midnight on Friday night, and be uh, in the military Saturday and Sunday and leave again Monday morning. So I actually was able to work a longer duration than the 60 days. Oh, I see. So you were able to just do weekends at the base. Right. And, and then Monday through Friday with McKinsey. McKinsey. Okay, and this was in the 60s. This said. was in the 60s. And back then, McKinsey was, again, primarily men, like right, Yale sure. was. Right. And it was almost 95% uh, Harvard B School graduates. Right. Oh, yeah, that was a big feeder. Right. Uh, so so when, when they recruited me or when I found the opportunity, they uh, they really let me know that I was going to be a trial balloon for them. because A uh, trial balloon. So you trial balloon. with a BS from Yale. Yeah. You come out of the Sloan School at MIT and you're a trial balloon. I'm them. a trial balloon. Pretty funny. To see if I'm going to be able to make right. and compete keep up with, with these guys. Keep up with all these smart Harvard B right. School guys. Yeah, they probably still feel the same way. So uh, I spent about four, a little over four years with McKinsey, worked on a number of really interesting projects in diverse industries like the railroad industry, the shipping industry. I helped develop the marketing strategy for the Port of Philadelphia. I did work in the entertainment industry. Columbia Records was a client. So you got exposed to a lot of different businesses because they're consulting with all kinds of businesses. Yeah, I, since I had this uh, semi-inferior complex, because Yale had wanted to throw right. me out, and, and McKinsey wasn't sure whether right. I could. I, I just made a point about working everybody. That started to pay off, so I wound up working on major, pro- multiple major projects at the same time, being the head person. And after uh, four, uh, almost five years, McKinsey started talking to me about becoming a early stage partner at the firm. I still wasn't confident enough that uh, that I could really do that or that that was warranted. And, and if my math is right, so you're like late 20s? Late 20s. Close, close yep. to 30? Okay. Late 20s. And you would work like on one, were you working on multiple companies at the same time or you go from one project no, and then that would I, finish I, and you go to something? I was typically, by that stage, I was typically managing multiple projects at the same time. Oh, okay. Two or three projects at the same time and within each project there would be teams of people. So I helped put together the merger of the Burlington Great Northern Railway, and I had seven or eight different teams looking at different aspects of the merger. And you were supervising the whole thing? So I was running the teams, plus I was running other clients. So the day they started talking to me about uh, nominating me as an early-stage partner at the end of the year, I realized that that probably wasn't what I wanted to do for my career. Okay. So late at night, I was working late at night, and I uh, called my wife up. I told her I was still working. I was going to be really late. And I said, I just made two decisions. And she said, what are they? I said, we're going to buy a racehorse. And she said, why are we going to do that? And I said, because I'm really interested in the racing industry. Now, you had never been involved with horses just, any part of your life? Just going to Cold the track. not a big horse town. Just going to the track Okay, with my dad when I was a kid. This is just... A whim. You wanted to get into horse. It was a passion. I was really interested. I thought it was really a very exciting sport that I just gravitated towards. So, and where were you at this point? You were in New Jersey. We were living in New Jersey, renting a house. Where was McKinsey's office in New York City in Park Avenue? But I was traveling throughout the country with McKinsey. They had you on the road a lot. Yeah, I'd leave uh, Sunday night and get back Friday night, and it was a it was a killer schedule. Yeah. 
She said, "When are we going to buy a horse?" I said, "Oh, we don't have <coughs> we don't have much money." <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> but that ever stop you, right? No. So I said, oh, "We'll have to find a cheap horse." And she said, "What's the other decision she made?" Because I said I had made two decisions. I said, "I'm going to quit my job." And she said, "What are you going to do then?" I said, "Tomorrow." That's perfect. So you want to go buy a racehorse? Right. You have no money, right. and you're going to quit your job. Right. And she said, "Why?" I said, "Because." Uh, they're starting to talk to me about becoming a partner here, and I'm not sure that's really what I want to do. And I don't think I should let them go down that path and encourage them to think that's what I want to do. That's fair. So I, I think I should give them my notice, wrap up the projects I'm on, and find something that I want to do. I think it's time for me to see if I can make it on my own. Okay. Judy supported both of those decisions. It took me maybe three or four months to leave McKinsey, and they kept upping the ante, upping the salary and all that. They wanted, they they wanted, wanted to, to keep me. And what, right. what they offered that came closest to keeping me is they had been retained by, in England to overhaul the British postal system. And they offered me the opportunity to go back to London and head up that project, which would have been kind of cool, would have gotten me back into England. Right. And I think overhauling a country's postal system would have been a fantastic experience. I'm sure it would have been interesting, especially so, in those days. So that was really hard to turn down, but I, uh, but I eventually left. Okay. And I left with a vision of this was going to be the start of my entrepreneurial career. And I was going to start out trying to raise money for early stage or uh, startup companies. Which was kind of unique in it the was, 60s. Nowadays, it it's a common discussion. Yeah. Back then, there was no mention of venture capital right. funds. Angel or investors. Not, nothing. Exist. In my own mind, I guess I created a new category right. of investing. I didn't even realize it at the uh, time. Uh, but when I, when I finally left McKinsey, I, I, I had, again, no money. I didn't even have business cards. I certainly didn't have an office. Uh, I didn't have any clients, and I didn't have any investors looking for deals. Right. So this is not how you'd recommend most people no. start out their entrepreneurial career with no job, no money, right. no wherewithal, nothing right. in writing, right. just wing right. it, right? Which and, is not what this podcast is. And, and, and back then, I was totally clueless about the importance of networking. Right. Because I had never done it. I never had to do it. I was never responsible. It wasn't as common a term as it is no, today. No, back then nobody talked about it. There weren't networking groups. There weren't networking books. Right. I had virtually no successful experience developing new relationships. You know, it's funny because, the, as I told you, the name of this podcast is called The Accidental Entrepreneur. You, like, became an entrepreneur by accident. You might have been the first accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> right. That's how I got all these gray hairs. <laughs> I just started out. At the time, we were living in New Jersey. And right? you didn't even know at that point what you were going to do, right? I basically had this concept that I was going to help raise money for early stage startup companies. But did you have any? No, I had none. I had no <laughs> companies to raise money for, and I had no investors looking to invest in deals. So uh, I would leave my home every morning because I felt like I had to act like I was going to work. Hey. I would take a bus into New York City. I'd go into Grand Central Station. With a pocket full of quarters. Yeah, no office. No office. Okay. And nobody helping me. No right. secretary, no partners. And you had no nobody on either side of the issue. You had no, no startup companies. You right. had nobody to put money into right. business. Right. Perfect way to start. Almost by accident, I start trying to reach out to big-time investors. My theory was if I could meet with investors and interview them and understand what kind of investment opportunities they were looking for, if I ever ran across a situation that fit their criteria, I could go back to them legitimately and they would take my call. And they, did you have any contacts with these people? I had no contacts. 
Okay. So I would get on the payphone in Grand Central Station and cold call banks, insurance companies, any large institutional investors. Which is probably a little bit easier then because everybody's so insulated now through email and phone, right, right? Right, but still, you know, I had to talk my way. secretaries, right? Yeah, I had to talk my way past the gatekeeper. Right. I remember the first person who really treated me with respect and open arms was a guy by the name of Ely Allen, who was running the money in America for the Rothschild family. Oh, sure. One of the biggest personal family wealth groups in, in the world. And Ely said, of course, I'll meet with you. Come on down. So I went down to meet with Ely Allen. And I told him my vision was to uh, launch a business raising money for early stage companies. And uh, I'd like to know what their investment criteria was. So if I ever run across something and I called him, he would know I had done my homework. All right. So let me back up for a second. Okay. Because this is kind of the beginnings of you learning about networking and entrepreneurship and all the stuff you do today. But totally. here you are. You're basically a kid, right? You're about right. 30 years old. Right. You have you have no connections. Right. You're calling on a payphone. We didn't have cell phones in those right. days with quarters to this guy. Right. What did you say to him when you got him on the phone for the first time? You don't know me, but... Yeah, I said, hi, uh, my name is Jack Killian. Do you have a couple minutes I can describe something where I think there's synergies between us? And he would say, some most you know, some of the people would say yes. Okay. And I say, you know, I'm just starting out with a new business. I'm brand new. This is a startup myself. I said, but I'm going to be concentrating on trying to find quality young companies that need money, and I'm going to position myself to help them be uh, raise the money that they need. So I'm trying to talk to investors like you and understand your investment criteria. So if I do run across opportunities and I come back to you, you'll know who I am. You'll know that I understand what you're looking for and that I think I have something that would fit your objectives. And you're already telling them you don't have any opportunities for them now. You uh, just yeah, wanna, right, right. Now, just, do you remember, I know this was a while ago, but do you remember how many is it, how many people you had to call on before you actually got somebody on the phone to say, okay, I'll meet with you? 10, 20? It wasn't that many. It wasn't many, but, okay. you know, Different time. Uh, uh, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you really need to be motivated. Confidence. And, and, right? and, uh, confidence is important, but you need to have a sense of urgency because you're going to run out of cash. You're going to run out of resources. Right. So if, if you're going to start your own business, you, you got to really hustle and you got to be motivated and you can't really take no. The second really big time person I met was Jack Dreyfus. Okay. who started the Dreyfus yeah, Mutual Dreyfus Funds. Funds. Yeah. And wow. to this day, he had the best office I've ever been in. It was spotless. It was big. It was impressive. Uh, but he was willing to give me time talking about the kind of investment opportunities he was looking at. So now, I, what was he doing in those days? The, he, the he, was running the, yes, he, he was running the Dreyfus okay. Funds very successfully with the lion coming out of the right, sub. I remember the whole thing. You know, for the first month or six weeks, I concentrated on uh, trying to learn what investors were looking for. And and then a uh, thing happened, a very good thing happened that I hadn't anticipated. Okay. Many, many, Which is often the way it kind of comes together. But a yeah. lot of it has to do with, like, luck happens because opportunities are created themselves and you see them. So, and sorry, and you ahead. have to be out there. You have to be out there doing it. Right. If you're trying to start a business and you're sitting at home. It's working not on happen. working on your plan, it's not going to happen. You know, I always say, if you want to get hit, you got to play in traffic, right? <laughs> right, right. And people That's, sit around waiting for the phone to ring, and right, nothing right. happens. Right? Nothing. The lightning is not going to strike. God, okay. God's not going to strike you with a lightning bolt, right? So, you, I think uh, if you're starting a business, you need to be out of your house, out of your office, nine to five, and do the other work from five to midnight. 
Right. And there's no, I don't see any alternative to that. But the uh, unexpected thing that started to happen is these uh, sources of investment capital started sending me deals that they had rejected. Oh, so they found deals that were maybe too small for them or not within their their, right. their wheelhouse. Right. And they start saying, hey, Jack, I got this deal. He needs money, right. but we're not putting the money in. Right. Because, okay. because I had already established credibility with them. They understood what I was trying to do. And, and I guess it made them feel better to not reject somebody that had approached them, but, but to say, why don't you go see my friend Jack? He might be able to help you. So pretty quickly, I started developing a real robust deal flow okay. of early stage companies that were looking for capital. So now you're getting the customers. And now I'm getting you the customers. You just got to find the capital because the guy sending them to you wasn't right. within their appetite. Right. But okay. what might what might not be right for the Rothschilds could be right for Jack Dreyfus. Right. By developing a network of investors and understanding their uh, requirements, I had alternative places to go once I found a deal. So one of the uh, interesting things about the deal flow is in the beginning, how, how long it took me to really assess a, an early stage company. And the first one I really looked at, I remember to this. In terms of evaluating it, the due diligence, yeah. is it viable understanding it? Right. And yeah. Is it the right management? Do they have a viable business plan? Is there a need? Is there a customer base? Are they realistic? How much money do they need? Right. You can't just take their word for it. Yeah. Everything they're going to tell you is going to yeah. sound great. Right. Yeah. So the very first deal I looked at was called uh, Locale Kitchens, which probably would work today. But it was a guy who wanted to start a chain of low-calorie restaurants. Okay. And I knew nothing about the restaurant industry. Uh, didn't have any real appreciation of counting calories. He didn't have a really good business model. So by the time I got done really looking at it and trying to put together a realistic financial plan and trying to think through whether there was a market for his concept, I probably spent six months, yeah, a sure. substantial part of my time. Now, when a deal comes to me, because I'm for some reason I'm still in a deal flow channel, you know, I, I have a pretty good feel of whether I want to look at something or whether well, it's viable. Well, you've looked at thousands. Of I've businesses. looked at thousands of deals, sure. and I've started nine different companies of my own. Yeah, in, so, in diverse industries. So, uh, you know, right now I, I'm pretty good at assessing an opportunity pretty quickly. Right. But back then, you know, uh, after maybe being on my own for six months, uh, one of my former McKinsey clients, a guy by the name of Russ Bernard, who had been VP of marketing at Columbia Records, when Columbia Records was a client, Russ uh, asked if he could join me if he resigned his position at Columbia. And I told him, you know, I can't pay you. Right. But if, if you're willing to take a, take a shot, then yeah. we can make this find successful. Find deals and get a percentage of what's going on. Yeah, and, and eat part of what, what you kill. Right. Uh, that'd be great. Does so, he join you? So Russell joined me. Okay. And then uh, to keep the, keep the wolf at bay, uh, the two of us took on a couple of consulting projects, one of which was with a New York Stock Exchange company by the name of Melville Corporation. That was a multi-retail uh, chain. And we did a project looking at whether Melville should open a, a chain of record stores. And we did it for the executive VP of the company, the number two guy, Spencer Ottinger. And at the end of the project, Spencer was in his mid-60s. Spencer said, you know, I'm getting ready to retire from here. I'd like to come hang out with you guys. You don't need to pay me. But, Even you know, better. Uh, but, you know, if you could uh, use some... Helped by a third person, I'd love to join you guys. So, and these these uh, consulting deals were really to 
Good cash flow coming keep, in the door, keep, keep the cash, lights on, right, feed your family. Right. Okay. And the other thing we did, when you're an entrepreneur, you got to find ways to be really cost effective. So we took on a client by the name of American Girl Services, which was a part-time temp agency. Okay. Uh, we took them on trying to raise money for the company. But in exchange for, instead of getting fees, which they didn't have to pay us, they gave us office space in their Fifth Avenue office. Ah. So now all of a sudden, the three of us have offices on Fifth Avenue that we bartered with one of our clients. So they were putting, placing like temporary secretaries, right. you know, whatever, when the women, right. the women were doing in those days. Right. All women. Right. Okay. Now you got free office space. That's We payment, got free right? office space and we're doing occasional consulting and we're looking at uh, just a boatload of deals that came to us. So we saw deals in all kinds of uh, sectors. We had developed a relationship when I was at MIT. I developed a relationship with a professor, marketing professor at Harvard, a guy by the name of Ted Levitt, because okay. I also took courses at the Harvard B School. Right, because people Ma don't know MIT and Harvard are right. kind of right next to right. each other in Boston. So that might have helped me get into McKinsey that at right. least had courses at right. the Harvard B School. I kept him up to date on what I was doing. And Ted Levitt started to send us deals. And he, he sent us several interesting deals, uh, most of which were from outside the country. Okay. So we wound up looking at deals uh, essentially around the world, Israel, Brazil, Barbados. Uh, and we looked at deals in manufacturing, you know, real estate, movie production, medical devices. So what do you remember what your first deal was and how long it took to find the deal? Yeah, the first real significant deal we did, we wound up helping Jan Winter launch Rolling Stone magazine. Okay. He was just starting in his mother's house with the magazine. He hit it off. We hit it off with him. He hit it off with us. Russell had background in the music industry. I had consulted with Columbia Records. Right. So we had some things in common. So we actually, uh, we didn't raise any money for, for Jan because he was close to closing his own deal. But we actually spent about a year working with him, opening up the East Coast of Rolling Stones operation. Okay. So that got us involved in the publishing industry, putting together ad sales material, going out, selling advertising finding writers, finding photographers, renting office space. Uh, so really was, building the operation. Really building the operation. The so He came from the West Coast? West Coast. Okay. Our business model was changing. Right. Not only were we raising money for companies, but we were providing strategic guidance for companies, which is one of the reasons I now position myself as a growth strategist. The other thing that happened is because of Spencer's contacts, we started to get a consulting engagement by corporate investors and deals that were go going south that were in trouble. Okay. And the first one of those, the first big one that we really worked on was for an investment group, Bessemer Securities. They had, uh, they had taken over ownership of a chain of photo shops called Photomat. Yeah, I remember. That Photomat. was in trouble. Yeah. So they engaged uh, our three-man firm, which we call KBO, Killian Bernard Nottinger, to help them think through how to turn around. So you became turnaround specialist. Turn, right? Became turnaround specialist. And I guess you turned it around because Photomat was pretty big back yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, we turned it, it around, around until film disappeared. We turned them around and helped them sell the company. Ah, okay. We spent about five years looking at deals. We, we did three or four or five deals. 
I learned it's very tough uh, to find entrepreneurial projects that really justify going out raising money for them. And as we got better at looking at deals, one of the interesting things we learned is that most early stage companies don't really need much money. Right. They can bootstrap their they way in. They can bootstrap their way in. And the investors are going to want some sort of an exit strategy, which right. is always difficult. Too. Yeah. And, and you know, my experience is very few privately held small companies ever really have an exit successfully because they don't go public. Right. And they don't get acquired. Yeah, it's like a job. Yeah. So I, I think it's very tough to find investors for small deals. Yeah. I think the angels and the venture capitalists out there, they're looking for the next billion dollar right, idea. They right. don't want to put $250,000 in a business that's going to make a few million. Right. So never get out of the business. So I think the strategy that we sort of evolved is finding ways to minimize the amount of capital that these early stage companies needed source capital from strategic partners rather than just passive independent investors. That could that could help with the that business, not help. just money wise. And had other reasons to be involved with the business. And how were you guys getting paid at the time? Were that, part of the money you raised or Yeah, but that that was part of our problem because uh, our fee structure was in the in the first few years was based on taking a percentage of the money raised. Right. Plus getting some options on some stock. Right. But as we got smarter at teaching these people how they didn't need to raise as much money as possible. Right. Now you're hurting your fees. We're hurting our fees. Right. Now you're getting stock in companies that really can't sell. Right. Right. It's right, not worth right, it. right. Right. So after five years, I mean, we're it was a very exciting way to live. We were meeting a lot of very motivated, interesting people with interesting ideas. Most of which never came to fruition. But we were essentially seeing new things every day. And I would say that's really where I got my PhD in entrepreneurship. Okay. You know, I, I just saw so many deals. Yeah, looking after business. After and business we met with business. so many people, good people, bad people, crooked people, honest people. Right. We found a lot of fraud in the deals I'm that sure. we were looking at. People, and they look at it as, they call it fudging the numbers. Right. But really it is fraud. Uh, fudging not only the numbers, but fr- uh, fudging uh, patent application. Like they didn't have patents. They didn't have patents. In, in right. one case, we, we grew suspicious of a guy from Washington who had a new technology product. And one day I just, uh, I woke up and I thought, something's the matter with this guy. So I had a cousin going to college down in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. And I asked John to go over and tell me what is at this address in D.C. And John went over that night and he called me the next day. He says, it's an empty lot. Nothing. Nothing. Totally fake. Yeah, totally fake. So, uh, yeah, I've had clients over the years that put money into deals and they were taken by supposed owners of companies to see buildings and operations. And it turns out it wasn't their operation. All the paperwork was forged. Right. That's, you know, that's what criminals do. We really became, I think, experts at looking at deals, assessing deals, creatively coming up with concepts for growing early stage companies. So at the end of five years, I sat down with Russell and Spencer and I said, this is all very fun. We're having interesting times every day, but we have a lousy business model. Yeah, it wasn't really profitable for you guys. You were helping a lot of people, learning a lot of stuff. There's no profit market. Right, 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 right. Right. So I said, if we're so smart, why don't we start our own business, go out and raise our own money. Makes sense. And see if we're as good as... You just got a PhD in it, right? So They agreed. So now we're challenged with what idea do we want to pursue? Back then, I wanted to start an investment advisory service for individual investors that I think would still work today. And I went so far as to do a test mailing with the idea to members of YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. Okay. And I got like a 20% positive response rate. 
which is unheard of in a direct mail right, campaign. Not, not at all. So I, we, we couldn't have started that business. Right. And there weren't investment advisory companies all over the place no, in those days, no, right? No, we are way ahead of the curve. Right. And again, the focus was going to be on finding small, publicly owned companies that were not being covered by Wall Street, where we could provide some strategic guidance uh, to the company and get paid by individual investors to find and track these companies. So they were they were small public companies, but they were so small that the analysts weren't that interested right, in them. Right, okay. right, right. So, and, and I think that idea would still fly today. Probably. There's a lot of penny stocks for yeah. companies, right? My, my partner, Russ Bernard, coming out of uh, the music industry, and with our successful Rolling Stone experience, thought we should start the first national country music magazine. Okay. There was no high-quality national country music magazine. This was in the early 70s. Okay. Uh, Mid-70s, I guess. So uh, we debated back and forth, and I said, we could start my business essentially without raising the money. We decided we would have to raise a half million dollars. Your business being the investment advisory business. Investment advisory business. And we decided we would have to raise about $500,000 to start a new national country music magazine. And we're debating. Which is, this is what? In the, that's a lot of money in lot the 70s. Of, a, ton, a ton of money. Right. And, you know, we, we had, although we had run across a lot of investors, we hadn't necessarily run across investors looking for startup country music magazine deals. Right. That was kind of a unique thing. You said thing. it didn't exist. It didn't exist. Right. Okay. So uh, one day I was reading the New York Times and I saw an article that Harper's Magazine was in financial trouble. So I called my two partners up and I said, I'll make you a deal. Let's call the owners of Harper's, which turned out to be a newspaper chain in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company, and see if we can talk them into hiring us to turn around Harper's. But they also would have to put up a half million dollars and they could own part of a startup country music magazine. Now, how did you come across this deal? I, I saw an article in the New York Times that Harper's was in trouble. It, is that Harper's Bazaar? Har- no, Harper's Magazine Harper's is the magazine. oldest general interest uh, magazine in the country. Does it still exist today? Yeah, yeah, it still exists today. Okay, so Harper's Magazine, you didn't have any contacts there. You didn't have any you contacts. You just saw an ad in the newspaper right. or an article. It was right. written about the company. Right. You reached out to them. Right. Uh, okay. So I, I this is a great story, by the way. I, I told my two partners, let's call the Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company, see if we can put together a two-part deal where they retain our firm to turn around Harper's and they put up the money to start Country Music Magazine. So we flipped a coin. I lost. I had to make the call. <laughs> I called the CEO of the Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company, told his secretary that I had a new business opportunity and also uh, some suggestions on improving the situation at Harper's, and I needed 10 minutes to talk to him on the phone. So she put me through, and I had the conversation. It ran longer than 10 minutes. Uh, within a couple of weeks, he came to New York to meet the three of us. He came out to see you he guys. He came out to see us, and we went to dinner with him, and we talked about our experience with Rolling Stone, and we went through our backgrounds and what we had all done. We all had successful educational backgrounds. Yale was also where Russell went as an engineer, and Spencer had been to Brown University and Harvard Business School. Yeah, so you weren't a we, bunch, bunch of idiots no, who went we, to the top schools in the country. Yeah, and we all had done successful things. I had worked in Europe. I had worked for McKinsey. And we spent five years in this. We were able to convince him that this made sense. So he had us come out and do a presentation to their board. Lo and behold, they wound up retaining our firm, KBO, to be the publisher of Harper's. And they also put up a check for half a million dollars. And uh, we gave them half the equity in uh, Country Music Magazine. 
So let's 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 back up for a second. Let's think how crazy this is. So you're going to this company that you've already read are having trouble, and you're going to them and say, "Hey, we can fix your problems and help you with the trouble, but." Right. But, we also want you to write a check, not even knowing when they had the money, right. for a half a million dollars to start a Country Western magazine. Remember the name? Was it Country Western no, it was, magazine? It was called Country Music. Country Music. Okay. Country does it music still magazine. today? I'm not sure, but it ran at least 30 years. I All think right, it so, probably does exist today in some form. So basically, you took over Harper's Magazine. Right. Really on a temporary basis, just to turn them around? Right. Or, but you, you but owned part of the company? No, we didn't own Harper's. But okay, you worked for Harper's, but yeah, then we you got became paid. a 50-50 owner in this new startup. Right. In a country and western magazine that didn't exist. Right. And there wasn't any competition. Nobody had a magazine. No. no. So who knows if it even worked? Okay? Right. So you must have been one hell of a salesman to convince this guy, three kids from New Jersey. Right. To the guy in Minneapolis. Well, New the, York at my, that point, I My guess. third partner, Spencer, wasn't a kid. He was in his late 60s. Right, but, okay. So, he brought some silver but he right was, to, the, to Spencer the was a, Spencer was a, one of the toughest, soundest person that I've ever met. He was just really great. And he added a lot in terms of credibility and judgment and wisdom. So, if you're going to start your own company, make certain that you're surrounding yourself with people who can really add value. Sure. And one, one of the lessons I learned in that five-year period of looking at deals is I would never suggest that an investor put money into a company that is essentially a one-person company. Right. They could have 100 people working in it, but if it's only one person really running it, stay away. Yeah. That's a that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you really need a right. good management team. So Nobody but, can do everything themselves, right? So part of, the, part of the reason we're successful dealing with the Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company is that we had spent these five years really sharpening our networking skills and got very good at reaching out to people and being able to concisely describe what we're trying to accomplish and, and finding ways to build relationships. Although I started off leaving McKinsey without any networking skills, by the time we finished this five-year period, I was getting better and better every yeah, day. Yeah, you're an expert. And if, if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, I, I think you really need to have really strong networking and relationship development skills. That's more important than having a lot of money in the bank. For sure. For sure. You can always find the money right. if you have the connection. Right. To raise the money from the, from the company out in Minneapolis, we had a real in-depth business plan we put together. I've got all kinds of views on business plans, but we had a business plan that showed month by month what the revenues were going to be from ad sales and everything. And before we started the magazine, we went to all the record companies. We showed them like a 10-page, 12-page uh, preview issue of what the magazine was this going to look like. This is the Country Western country, magazine. Country Music Magazine. Okay. Showed them what it was going to look like, four-color, great photography, Top-notch artists on the cover, interesting articles. And they all said they, they loved the idea that they would support it, would devote a big chunk of their advertising bucks to the magazine. So we, we thought we were in great shape. And then... Uh, so was a lot of this getting done in Nashville because no, of the country western? No, it should have been west? done in Nashville. <laughs> okay. It should have been done in Nashville. And one of the early problems we ran into is actually resentment from some of the leaders in the industry because these three Ivy League hotshots... We're starting this company from Park Avenue right? because we launched Country Music. Because you weren't in Nashville. We weren't in Nashville, and we put Country Music Magazine's office in the same building as Harper's. So we could run well, up. Because you were right there. You had run, to be in the same place. Yeah, so we could run up and down the stairs and exchange right. ideas. And the day we got our, our check for a half million dollars, back in those days, I used to wear nice suits, nice Italian suits. Right. In great shoes. I don't even have a suit now. <laughs> the 
the day we got the, the check, I, I had the check in my pocket when I was going home. And I called Judy up and uh, I told her again I was going to be late. I'm also often calling her, telling her I'm going to be late. Right. And by the way, That's what, you and Judy are still together. Right. You have children. You have a right, long life right, together. Right. She's stuck with you right. all the way through this. Right. Time. Right. And we both have gray hair. Right. <laughs> I called her up and I said, I'm going to be late. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, well, we just got the money to start Country Music Magazine. I'm going to go find a country music bar because I don't know anything about country music. <laughs> So I looked in the yellow pages. Now, did your partner, the one who was at Columbia um, Music, was he? Did he know anything about country music? He, he he knew. Yeah, he knew a lot about country music. But the way we divided up the responsibilities of running Harpers and running country music, my partner Russell, who knew country music, wanted to work on Harpers because he was really interested in all the sexy people that were writing for Harpers. Right, Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, right. Kurt Vonnegut. So, Russell sort of fell in love with George Plimpton. So, he fell in love with the glamour of Harper's. And he wasn't so interested in He wasn't music. so interested. So, I wound up running country music with, you know, day-to-day responsibility, but also being involved with Harper's without knowing very much about the industry. So, I, I found a, a country music bar in Carlstadt, New Jersey on my way home. Stopped at the bar. I'm sitting at the bar sipping a beer because I don't really drink in my three-piece Italian suit. And eventually, the bartender, a woman, comes on. She said, what are you doing here? You're so out of place. It was like a biker bar. Right. And I told her what I was Carlstadt, doing. Carlstadt, New Jersey, Carlstadt. the center of <laughs> country music in the Northeast, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I told her what I was doing. She got really excited. Turned out she she and her husband owned the bar, and he was in the back of the bar playing in a three-man group. And when the group took a break, she brought him over, introduced us. He got excited, and he said, this is really great. The industry really needs what you're proposing to do. We live upstairs, and the bar closes at 1. you got to stay. Come upstairs and tell us all about this project and see how we can help. So I called Judy up again, I said, this could be an all-nighter. later than you said you were going to be This is going to be an all-nighter. So at 1 o'clock, I go upstairs to their apartment, and I spent till like 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning with them just learning country music, getting their advice on who we should put on the cover, who in Nashville we should get to help us, who could write for us, what are the artists we should cover, what should be the different sections of the magazine. And those notes from that meeting became our actual business plan. I never went back and referred to the business plan again. That was it. That was it. And the, you remember this guy's name? Who? What his name was? Yeah, Fran and Max Sullivan. And did they, were they pretty big in country music? Or yeah, the, the, the bar was a country music bar. On a local basis, they were big in the country bar. Okay. And right in the middle of the night, this is another strange part of it, they were friends with Les Paul, the guitarist. Yeah, sure. And, and he lived near them. So they called him in the middle of the night and said, we got this guy sitting in our apartment telling us about his idea to start a country music magazine. You got to come over and meet him. So Les Paul came over in his pajamas in a bathrobe and slippers, and he sat in for a couple hours adding his two cents. A couple hours? It's like dawn now. Right, right. So that really really became the foundation of how we started the magazine. Wow. I stayed with the magazines. We stayed with Harper's for a couple of years, eventually got it turned around and sold. Okay. Then we were kind of. The promise you made, right? You would turn it around. Okay. And that, that worked. Partway through that turnaround, they weren't particularly happy with the way the Harper's project was going. So uh, the chairman called me. The Star Tribune. The Star Tribune. The chairman called me, asked me if he could meet with me. And I said, sure, I'll get my two partners. And he said, "Uh, we'd prefer just to meet with you. So I had dinner with them in New York. And they uh, said they weren't 
happy with the way things were going at Harper's. They wanted me to be responsible for both projects. But you weren't really involved with Harper's. I wasn't doing really, the I was music doing bank. Har- so I said, I'm not going to get rid of my partner. I can't do that. They said, no, you, you don't have to do that. You can use Russell any way you want to use Russell. But we want you to be responsible for the results. They want you to be the CEO yeah. or whatever the position was. So uh, I had to reluctantly agree. Okay. So I wound up running both companies. We eventually got Harper's cleaned up and sold it. And then the three of us were concentrating on country music magazine. When my dad died, he, at that time, was struggling with Killian Extruders. It's like a right, 12 with the plastic, plastic company in New Jersey company. making a plastic extruding equipment, about 12, 13 people in it. He drops dead one Saturday, and my father and I had had issues over a 10-year period, so I had not been involved in the business. Your relationship with those was all strange. It was strange. Which is common as you get older. Yeah, it was really strange. We hadn't talked in several years. Right. And I get a call one Saturday morning. At that time, my father was in the horse racing business, owned a farm in New Jersey, unsuccessful in the horse racing business. Now, is that what got you interested in horses, or he? He got me interested. He got me interested in horses by taking me to the track. To the track, okay. It was many years later when I was at McKinsey is when he bought the farm. Okay. And he started trying to breed horses. I had no success. He was using outside trainers. Very difficult, but very few people can keep their head above water. Right. So I get a call from the guy that was working with him on the farm one Saturday morning that my father just had a heart attack and died. So he wasn't ill or anything? He had, he had heart issues. How uh, old was he at that point? 62. Wow, young. Um, and how old were you? I uh, was probably, I don't know, no, mid-30s. Mid-30s? Okay. All right. So he died on a Saturday morning. I went up to the hospital, found him dead in one of the rooms. I went through his pockets. I got the keys to his office. After we got him situated in the funeral home that same day, I went down to his office to see what was going on. Right. I went through his desk, went through his checkbook, and I found that he had about 23 bucks in the bank, owed over $2 million, most of which was personally guaranteed, had no receivables. Right. And uh, I think the financial pressure is what caused the heart attack. Probably, Because yeah. I'm sure he had no idea what to do Monday. He had no money for the payroll this right. coming week. So I called his accountant. I said, you know, my father just passed away. I'm sitting at his desk. This is what I see. And, and he tells me, yeah, we've been talking to him about bankrupting the company. I said, yeah, but if you do that, if I understand what I'm looking at, they're going to be able to go after my mother's car, her teeth, her house. I said, I can't let that happen. So yeah, I, because they own their assets yeah, jointly, yeah, right? Yeah. So I said, I think uh, i got to come in here and at least see if I can make it better. Your father suddenly passed away. You were working on the country music magazine and, and Harper's, Harper's, but you were in the city. Right. And his business was, where was it located? He, he, he was in Verona, New Jersey. Okay, right near where we all grew up. And he had a uh, two-man operation down in Florida. That was part of the company. That they was just part had of the company. Down there? He didn't have an office. He, he, one of the guys that was had been with him for a number of years, developed a serious illness, wanted to move to Florida. And rather than have him go down there really to pass away, my father said, why don't you uh, go find some small space and I'll send some machinery down there and you keep working for us down there. Okay, so it was a small machine shop down it's, there. Yeah, two-man okay. machine shop. Okay, so your dad passes away, you take the keys, you go to the office, you realize they have no, no money, right. a ton of debt, right. payroll hitting Monday. Right. No, and, the, 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 the payroll hit. People, people had to get Friday. paid. Yeah, getting 
next Friday. Okay, so you had a week, you had five days. And I and I had no real experience with the company. And the only person... You didn't really know his business at all, No, right? I, didn't, I didn't really know his business. I only knew one person in the company. That was the guy down in Florida, Norm Brown. So the one guy you knew wasn't even working he was, in the Verona shop? No. So... Uh, so what'd you do? So uh, I called his accountant and I told him, uh, you know, what had happened. And he, he talked about bankrupting. I said, no, we can't let that happen. Because yeah, it's all going to fall on your mother's yeah, head, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I said, I got. I think I got to come in here and see if I can make it better. He said, you're already running two companies. Right. Meanwhile, my father had a farm. He had bought this farm. That might have cost it. That might have been a lot of the drain of the resources, yeah, right? 50 acre farm in Morris County, New Jersey. Right. The big horse country right. in, in, in New Jersey. He agreed to meet with me on Sunday. It turns out he was one of the executors of my father's estate. The other guy okay. was a lawyer for Montclair. So, so there were two executors, two executors, a lawyer and the CPA. And my father's will said sell everything and put it into trust primarily for my mother. So you can't sell a company's got two million of debt and twenty three dollars in the bank. Right. Right. At that time my father had ten horses that weren't worth any, anything. Right. He had this fifty acre farm with a mortgage on it. Is that where they lived or this was in addition to where they uh, that's where they lived. Okay. I met with the executors on Sunday and I convinced them that, you know, I was willing to put in the effort to try to make a difference while I was continuing to run country music in Harpers. Right. Because you just made a deal with those guys. You couldn't just walk away no, from no, that. No, no, no. Right. Absolutely. So they, they agreed to have me come in on Monday and, and start, see what I could do. One one of the hard decisions I made, which is uh, I still have second thoughts about it today, I never put an obituary out on my father because I didn't want anybody to know. the business, right? Yeah. And the employees. Right. If anybody, any of the employees had seen my father pass away, they wouldn't have come back to work. Right. So, I broadcast it. Yeah. So, right. nobody knew my father died for months. Well, that um, probably helped you, though. Yeah. It helped them. Yeah. And your mother. When when, when uh, people would call the company and ask for Mr. Killian, I'd get on the phone and... You were Mr. Killian. Oh, didn't tell they them didn't I was the, the wrong one. Right. <laughs> I took my father's car that Monday, drove, put it in this parking spot. Went into his office before anybody else got to work. When everybody showed up at work, at, they, the work hours were they 7. They saw his car. So. Saw his car. Yeah. They went out and start working. You're behind closed doors. Uh, behind closed right. doors. A few minutes after everybody's there, I walk out into the plant floor. I tell everybody, shut the machines off. I, I describe what... I introduced myself. I described what happened. Right. You said you had an estranged relationship with your dad. So you've yeah. never met these people. I never met them. They might have not known you existed. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So Changing uh, their life that day. Right. So I said, you know, I have no idea whether I can save the company, but I'm going to give it my best shot. I said, I only have enough personal money to make the payroll that will be due on Friday. So if I can't come up with some clever solutions by Friday, I'm not sure what happens next. I said, but if you're willing to give me a chance and if you're willing to see what happens, then go back to doing what you're doing because I can't help you do what you're doing. Right. You know, just well, do it's it. only five days, right? Yeah. So they know they're getting paid Friday. Right. It's not like you asked them for six months. But, yeah. I see what happens. Yeah, I said, but if you're not, you know, if you want to give me a shot, you know, just go back to doing what you do. Otherwise, if you're afraid, I guess you should leave. So right. no, nobody left. Okay. And, uh, they didn't have much to lose at that point, right? You couldn't right. find a job in two days. So right, right. You could wait a week. What's right. the big deal, right? So for all you entrepreneurs out there, what would you do if you took over a company that had 23 bucks in the bank and owed a couple million bucks and you only had payroll for personal payroll for one week? What do you do? 
I don't know M- what you Mitch do. is shaking his head. I don't know what you do. I mean, luckily, the $2 million wasn't your personal thing, right. so you still had good credit. Right. Right. You could go out and get a bank loan or something, but you got to remember, the bank's now saying, okay, Mr. Killian, we're right. going to loan you money for your dad's failing company right. that's right. got $2 million right. of debt to keep the employees right. in place. Right. Right. That's a tough sell. So, you know, because I had spent five years looking at companies in all different stages of uh, success or failure, knew quite a bit about how to raise debt funding or equity funding. I knew this yeah, company. that side of the business you knew. You just yeah. didn't know your dad's business. Yeah, right. But but I also realized nobody's going to invest in this company. No bank is going to lend additional money. Right. No shot. What you do I that out. What do I do? So I went to my father's office. I told his uh, secretary, Give me a list of everybody we owe money to, from the largest to the smallest. Everybody. I want a complete list. So it wasn't like a $2 million credit line with one lender. It was a whole slew of, of suppliers. All kinds of people that were All kinds money. of suppliers. Okay. Yeah, insurance companies, we're laid on premiums, everything. She gave me a list of people we owed money to. I said, uh, I'm going to go in and start calling everyone. When the phone light goes off, dial the next one. So I sat there for about a day and a half, and I talked to everybody that we owed money to. And I described the situation. I said, we have no money, so if you get tough and come after us, you're not going to get anything. I said, so what I propose is that, for the suppliers, I said, what I propose is that you put us on COD immediately, because I assume we're going to have, if we can save the company, I assume we're going to have to work with you. Right. But I don't think you should go in any deeper with us. Right. So, so put us on COD. Going pay forward. Uh, going forward, we'll right. pay as we go. I'll somehow find enough money to do that. You know, I think that's a really good lesson for people because we, you, you and I both, we run into a lot of entrepreneurs, business owners that are in trouble. And sometimes, it, a lot of times, if you get in front of your problems and you're honest with people and you just go to them and say, hey, we're having problems because 99% of people do have problems right. in their life. Right. I want to work it out. I don't want you guys to lose. Right. We don't want to lose. Right. Let's work together. You know, 99 out of 100 times, people are going to work right. with it. And in some cases, they don't have a choice. Right, right. Because they're going to get a worse result if they don't. So, right. yeah, so, so go on. So, I said, so put us on COD, and then every Friday, I'll, I will send you a note with the progress that we've made in improving the company. And if I can, I'll stick a little money in, in the letter. Might be 5 bucks, might be 20 bucks, might be 100 bucks. Uh, extra. Extra. Just against the what? Against the old balance. Against the old balance. Right. Now, just so I I understand and people listening, the company was still doing business. So it had accounts. It had jobs it was doing. So there was cash flow coming in the door. There there wasn't much much work in progress. Okay. Which was one of the issues. My father did not have a sales force. Ah, okay. He was the sales guy. Okay. So he was was the everything in the company with an eighth grade education. Okay. So he got as far as he got basically on brute strength and energy and but how commitment. did you start building up the jobs, the yeah. work? So anyway, to finish the story of the suppliers, yeah. every supplier agreed with what I proposed. So that took including the banks. So that, that took the immediate heat off of having to pay back bills. Right. Then uh, the second day I, I told Jeanette, get everybody This was Monday. The first Monday, day you first dealt with day. the employees. You shocked them with this news, you and then you called all the creditors. Right. Okay. Right. So it's been only twenty four hours. Right. Right. Okay. And meanwhile, I'm still doing things with Harpers and country right. music. Right. You got that going on. I got too. that going on too. And my mother couldn't take care of the horses, so now I'm running up to the farm feeding horses twice a day. Oh my goodness. And cleaning stalls. Oh. Didn't so, there, were there people at the no because no, they didn't have the money right? right. 
So nobody's even taking care of the horses right, right there. And there's 10 horses. Uh, and I have some clients in the horse business now. I understand what right, it takes. It takes right, a lot. Right. Horses make a lot of manure. Right. They need their stalls cleaned out right, every day. They right, need feed. They need right, shaving. Right. So I was yeah. up there twice a day. That, the farrier, the yeah. whole thing. So anyway, uh, the second second day, I start calling the companies that we had work in process with. Okay. And these were mostly customers. Big customers. Okay. These were mostly big companies where we're building custom equipment, not things you could buy off the shelf. Right. So, and they were companies like Dupont, Monsanto, Plastic Company, 3M, right? Um, big company, Baxter Travelall. Were they big then? They were big. Yeah, big. Yeah. So I called them up and I describe. I introduced myself. I described the condition of the company. All of these companies have put up either a twenty-five or a third deposit, and we're partway through the job. And I said, we don't have any money to finish your job. And if you sue us, you're not going to get anything because we don't have any money. And if you want to go to try and find somebody else, I think you're going to have a tough time finding another supplier, at least on a short-term basis. Right. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come to killing extruder in the first place to get us through the hump. I'm asking you to prepay your balance by Friday. Wow. I said, you know, if you prepay your balance by Friday, we're going to have enough cash to finish your job on schedule. And you'll get what you originally bargained for. If you don't do that, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Right. I got every company to prepay by Friday. Wow. There was only one company, a smaller company from Detroit, uh, Jack Clark, who had a company making brushes for automobile cleaning places. Uh huh. The big brushes. For like uh, car washes? Car washes. Like and right. he used the extruders to produce the bristles. Ah. He wanted to come meet with me. He was a one man. Uh, you know, sole owner of his business. So he flew in from Detroit on Friday. We went out to lunch, and I guess he wanted to look me in the eye and, and see whether he told the truth or not. the truth or not. Right. I walked him through the shop. I showed him the status of his job, and uh, after lunch, he gave me a check for the balance. And so I got a hundred percent of the existing companies to the prepay. Pay. So now you had cash in the now bank. Now we had you cash in the payroll. Bank. Yeah. And I, gave, and I never raised a dime for that company. I never took on additional debt, and I never took on, and I never sold any equity in the company. The guy down in Florida was the closest in skills to my dad. So the day of my father's funeral, afterwards I pulled him aside. I said, I'm going to try to save the company, and I need you to do it. Or maybe you can save the company. Maybe you if you want to try to do it, I don't have to be involved. Yeah, you got sixteen other businesses yeah. you're running. He said the last thing you need. He said, I don't I don't know how to save a company. Right. He was also was a high, high school guy. Right. So I said, Well, why don't I buy the company or and when I buy it I'll give you half of it. Okay. So eventually I bought the company for twenty five thousand dollars and a note to take on the debt myself. So I switched the debt out of my father's estate and took it on myself. Wow. And the bank agreed to let me do that. Okay. Uh, and when I bought the company, I gave Norm 50% of it and on a handshake basis, which I'm sure Mitch would think might not be the smartest thing in the world. But we, Probably not, we, but you knew him we, a long time. with so your dad a long yeah, time. Yeah, we worked together for 10 years on a handshake, and it worked great. Okay. Now, what was the, the strategic reason for buying the company from the estate? $25,000 probably wasn't even worth that much at that point. And taking on the debt, what was the strategic reason for doing that? The, the the executors had to sell the company. That was part of their instructions in the will. 
Nobody going to buy no, it. Nobody going to buy it. Right. The bank wasn't going to let the estate go. Right. They're not going to sit there all forever. Right. So they would have gone after my father's estate. Right. If I didn't negotiate that. No, an outsider's not going to take on the debt. They're no. just going to buy the assets. No. Right. Okay. There were no assets, really. Right. A small little building. The operation, right. And that got your mom out from underneath. Got my stuff. mom out from under. Okay. To really complicate my life, because I had this passion for horse racing. Right. I convinced the uh, executors to give me an option to buy the farm. They were instructed to sell everything for the top value. Here's a word from our sponsors. Looking to get into podcasting? Maybe to market your business for your own enjoyment or because you have a message you want to get out there. One of One Productions is a New Jersey-based studio just over the George Washington Bridge that caters to the booming business of podcasting. They offer a comfortable atmosphere using the latest technology available to record your podcast. And they are a full-service media company offering both audio and video production services, creating both audio and video podcasts as well as video shorts for business and personal use. Professional audio equipment packages are available through their website for all budgets. And be sure to check out their podcast guesting kit created specially for our listeners. Care for your health. Care for the planet and look flipping great doing it. North Authentic is a conscious hair care marketplace offering the cleanest brands from around the world. Their pro stylists curate only the most fabulous non-toxic hair products with better-for-you shampoos, serums, masks, and more that actually give you gorgeous hair without hurting your health or the planet. Hey, you've only got one life, one planet, and one glorious mane. Might as well treat them all as best you can, right? Try a 100% clean hair care routine prescribed just for you using their link in the show notes. If you don't see a big, beautiful difference in how your hair looks and feels, you can tell them they're crazy. Do you battle chronic pain, stress, anxiety, or depression? Well, if you take any supplements or you're interested in natural alternatives, you need to know about findyourhealthyplace.com. Find Your Healthy Place has thousands of supplements to help you live a better quality of life, as well as natural solutions for chronic pain, stress, anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and much, much more. Need guidance? Use their live chat feature and talk to a wellness consultant right on their website. And be sure to use our coupon code TAEPODCAST for all your purchases to get the best prices at findyourhealthyplace.com. Follow their links in the show notes to learn more about all of our sponsors. And now back to our show. What was the farm worth at the time? 70s, right? Yeah, 50 acres in Morris County. It's worth a fair amount of money. Yeah. Prime prime real estate. Right. He was. That's where his money was. It was in the ground. Right. It was in the yeah. real estate. Would that have been enough to pay off the creditors, the company, no, and pulled no. it up? No, it wasn't worth no, that much. No. Okay. They were instructed to sell everything, sell the 10 horses, sell Killian Extruders, sell the farm. Well, there was not going to be any buyer for Killian Extruders right. other than me. Right. Because I was willing to take on that risk personally and that commitment of my energy. They agreed to give me and Judy a 30-day window to match the highest offer they got on the farm. Right, because they had a fiduciary obligation they a, they to the estate obli- to get the best price for the real estate. Right. Business is a different story. You're right. taking over the debt. It's got no value. And, and for the horses. Right. So, so I put them in touch with a horse trainer who came up, looked at the horses, and gave them an evaluation. He valued 10 racehorses in different stages of age and repair. and 10 of them he valued at $28,000. Total. Total. Nothing. 
Right. So the ten of them were worth nothing. Right. But that was the the value he assigned to them. Well, were they were they usable? I mean, they could, they would race, or they really passed their prime. Most of them. Most, them? Of, most of them. Were, no, there were a couple you could breed. Okay. But they didn't have any fancy bloodlines. Right. Most of most of them had injuries. Would right. never race. Yeah. So they're worthless. So worthless. They agreed to give me the 30-day option to buy the farm, match the highest offer, but I had to agree to buy the horses. That's part of it. That's part of it. Okay. So I gave them a note for $28,000, okay. and I owned the horses okay. before I owned the farm. But you had to leave them there. Nowhere I had to leave to them there. Right? Nowhere else to put them. So now I got 30 days to raise the money to the farm, and I got about $2,000 of cash. And how much did you money. need to buy the farm? What was the... Several hundred thousand. Several hundred thousand. Several hundred thousand? Several hundred thousand dollars. Okay. All you entrepreneurs out there, how do you raise several hundred thousand dollars in 30 days? For raw land. For that raw land. doesn't have cash flow So uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I was down in Kentucky selling advertising for a country. You music. couldn't go to the bank and get a mortgage? You didn't get a loan? I had no well, I guess you just took on... Debt. Millions of dollars of debt from your right, dad's business. Right. Okay. So I was not bankable. Right. So uh, I'm down in Kentucky selling advertising to the cigarette companies for Country Music Magazine. I've been racking my brain. I figured the only person that I can call, again, developing my networking skills. Right. I could maybe cold call the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington. Secretary of Agriculture of the United States. States. Right. Okay. So I asked the receptionist that Brandon Williams, could I use your phone? She said, sure. So I put in a call to the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Right. I didn't get him on the phone, but I got his assistant. I'm looking for some help from the Department of Agriculture. I've got 30 days to get enough money together to buy a farm. Otherwise, they're going to turn it into a housing development. Was that true? Yeah. The buyer was going to put track housing on the property. Okay. So I said, I'm sure the Department of Agriculture would prefer to keep 50 acres, prime acres in New Jersey as a farm, as opposed to just another housing development. Okay. Do you have any programs to help guys like me raise money? To That's smart. Buy a farm. Right. So they, they didn't put me through to, to the secretary, but they put me through to one of his top assistants. Okay. And I told him the story again, and he said, yeah, we have programs. We have an office in New Jersey. I'll make a call to introduce you to the head of the office. Go up there, talk to them, see see what they can do to help you. Now, this is just this just occurred to you, like maybe there's government programs right, out there, right? Right. Okay. No, no previous knowledge of just just racking my a brain. Shot. Took a shot. Okay. Like we took a shot calling the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Right. Well, that at least you saw an article. Yeah. You know they were having trouble. Took a shot. Okay. Yeah, they could have told you we have no programs right, or whatever. Right. Right. Okay. But when I got back from that sales trip, I called the office in New Jersey. I went up to meet them. They told me they had a couple of programs where they could loan me money, right. even though I had this debt from the co- company. Right, they're not a bank. They, it's the government. But, yeah, and, and the land was going to be the asset for this deal. I didn't own the land when I did the deal with the bank. Right. So that was not part of the assets I was pledging to the bank. Right. For the so company. It wasn't encumbered. You right. didn't own it. Right. So they said they could loan me, I forget, 75 or 80% of the money I needed. Okay. So... I'm racking my brains. Where do I come up with the balance? Because I still don't have any money. And the only asset I had at the time was my equity ownership in Country Music Magazine. Right. Okay. You own 50%. I own a third of 50%. Oh, right. Because the the Star Tribune owned half. Right. 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 Okay. So you own, that's third, so a sixth of the business. Right. Okay. So I called my friend, the chairman of the Minneapolis Star Tribune Company. I said, I'd like to make a proposal. He said, what's your proposal? I said, I want to sell you my share of Country Music Magazine 
for X dollars. And X dollars was the amount I was missing to buy the farm. Right. He said, why do you want to get out of country music? You're doing a great job. The company's being successful. And I said, because I told him the story. I said, I want to buy the farm. I have no other assets. Tell him the story. Your dad had passed away. Yeah. And the company and everything. So uh, I said, uh, you know, the only asset I have is uh, equity in country music magazine. And he said, well, we don't want to lose you. You're doing a great job. And I said, you're not going to lose me. It's not going to change how I work. I'll still do what and I'm doing. you're still going to stay on with yeah. him, along with the horses, along right, with right, your dad's business. Right. Okay. I said, but while we're talking about this, I said, me and Russell and Spencer should figure out a way to buy you out of country music because I'm going to be running around like crazy and I'm the guy that you're relying on to run it. So we should be thinking about an exit strategy for you. But in the meantime, I'd like to sell you my equity. He said, well, I don't think we want to do that. We, you know, you're involved with Harper's. You're, you're doing a great job of both. That's Harper's was sold, not at that point. Not, not yet. Okay. Not yet. He said, but I'll get back. Let me let me talk to some people here. But I don't think we're going to do this. So he called me the next day. He said, Jack, he said, we're not going to loan you. We're, we're not going to buy you out. He said, but there's a check in the mail. It should be to you today for what you need. We're going to loan it to you. And, and they gave you the money. They gave me the money. And they didn't want to buy yet. They wanted yeah. to, to keep skin in the game. Right. Be, yeah. they, they said, I'm going to put you in touch with our corporate attorney. You can work out a loan agreement between you and Judy and our company. But we don't want to lose you. They didn't even want collateral. They, they don't want You were the collateral. I was the collateral. Okay, great. So well, they, they obviously liked you. So that's how I got money to buy the, the farm. Now that's not, is that where you live today? Yeah. In Tewksbury? It's the same land? In, in Long Valley. Long Valley. We've okay. been up there about 30 some odd years now. Wow. And you told me recently that your son and his wife are moving there. They're and buying. And you're going to live on the property? Right. Our son and his wife are going to buy the farm. Because okay. he loves the, the farm. Is he going to do more with horses, bring more? No. no. Just like being out there in the yeah. land? They're going to buy it. We live in a several hundred-year-old German farmhouse. So we put a big addition on, put a garage up, office over the garage, a swimming pool. They've been for re- you? Okay. No, for, for him. him. For him, okay. And they've been remodeling an apartment in the barn, which is bigger than our current house. Now, when we did a Zoom call the other day online, was that where you were sitting? Yeah. I uh, could see that the there house, were things open. The beams. They're already doing work there and stuff? <laughs> okay. So, so, so it's really going, uh, it's going to be third generation. Right, third property. generation. Wow. So that sort of brings me around circle. I wound up, I made two decisions that other entrepreneurs might think about. Now I'm running Walnut Farm. Okay. I'm running Killian Extruders. I'm still running Harper's. <laughs> right. And You're I'm still involved in Country Music Magazine. In Country Music right. Magazine. So I'm running four different businesses at once. And everyone deserved attention. I had to somehow be involved. They needed your services, your yeah, skills, they, your yeah, I had to be. I had to be at the farm right. feeding and doing things. I had to be at Killian Extruders answering the phone, talking to customers. Right. Motivating the employees. Right. It wasn't like thing. today where you have a cell phone if you're different places, no. people can still get all the no cell phones. None of that. None of that. Right. No internet, no email, no right. nothing. It was letter in person or phone. Right. Landline. You know, it's funny, to a certain extent, that might have helped you because the speed at which right. everything moved in those days, expectations were different. Right. So you didn't have people chasing you down saying, Jack, I gotta talk to you now. Right. They would call your secretary. Secretary would have to find you. They'd have to send you a letter. It was right. different. Okay. Right, right. But there's plenty of entrepreneurs that run multiple businesses. Right, right. I made two decisions uh, that I think were really critical to the success I was able to have. First one, I stopped drinking anything. 
And I was never a big alcohol drinker. Right, you don't mean anything. You mean alcohol. Al- alcohol. You still drank water and you, yeah, you yeah, nourished right. yourself. Yeah, yeah, but no right. no alcohol of any kind. Out of your life. Cold, stop. Okay. Well, when I was in New York running the magazines, I'd be out at night. Yeah, you have all these social yeah. events you had to go to, right? No, I, but I realized I had to be absolutely clear-headed 24 hours a day, seven okay. days a week. Good advice. And, and the other thing was I, I was out of shape, so I started jogging. Okay. And I realized I, I, I essentially felt like I had to turn myself into a weapon. I had to be absolutely really sharp. Really sharp, really fit. Now, what year was this about? Late 70s. Okay. So fitness is starting to come on then also. Yeah. That was kind of coming into the So So I start jogging every day. And I got okay. myself to, now I don't jog, but I <laughs> wish I did. But back then I could jog any distance. If somebody told me to go jog to the George Washington Bridge, I could have done that. Uh, so I got myself really physically fit, mentally fit. Okay. And I was running four businesses at once. Right. Well, it's hard to do all that stuff if you're not taking care of yourself. Right. Right. Which, so, to a certain extent, may have been one of your dad's right. problems he ran into. Right. So I think all Stress. entrepreneurs Stress management. need to think about managing their health as right. well as managing their business. Yeah. Uh, I think Good the advice. two things are totally linked together. Right. So anyway, the, the way things evolved, we got Harper sold. So that eliminated one of the stress points. Right. I convinced Russell and Spencer. I tried to give Russell and Spencer, my two partners in country music, a piece of Killian Extruders. Okay. Because I was diverting my time, and they were not diverting their time. But they didn't. They weren't interested in owning part of a privately held, small, struggling manufacturing company. So I got them to buy me out of Country Music Magazine. And remember, the guy from Florida, what was his name? Norm Brown. So he owned 50% of the construction company. He owned 50%. Okay. So Russell and Spencer didn't want to come into the manufacturing company. They bought me out of country music with a note. Okay. And they continued to Your run Your one-sixth share. My one-sixth share. And how did the Star Tribune feel about that? They wanted you to be involved. Uh, before, before I did the deal with Russell and Spencer, we bought the Star Tribune out. Ah, so you owned... 100% of the business, right. the three of you, and then they bought you right. out. And we bought the Star and Tribune company out, and it was only after a couple of years right. of their being an investor with they made a nice substantial gain on their investment. So our phone call to them to turn around Harper's and get them involved in a startup really worked for them. They sold Harper's, and they got a return on Nice right. return on their sure. investment in country music. So Russell and what was your other partner's name? Spencer. So it was Russell and Spencer went off and continued to run country music, country music magazine. Okay, Harper's is now gone. Harper's is gone. So now I'm running Killian Extruders. Yeah, the horses. And the horses. Okay. And uh, early on with the horse business, I had other people training whatever horses we had at the track. Okay. But, th- but that was not being successful. So one day I said to Judy, "If we're going to stay in the horse business." I think we have to totally integrate. We have to breed our own. I think we have to train our own. So when you say train, you train them for racing and then sell the horses? No. Or they're racing for right. your farm? Racing for our farm okay. at the track. Okay. So, which meant either me or Judy every day would have to be at the racetrack. And you only, you win money out of a purse if, right. you, if the horse right. places. Right. Okay. Well, I still live on a farm, so I spent 20 years breeding and training racehorses. Became pretty successful. In the horse racing industry, I was elected president of the group in New Jersey that represents all the owners in the state. So I was the guy that was negotiating purses with the tracks. So you only did racehorses. You didn't I do equine did, jumpers. No, I only did thoroughbred racehorses. Okay. 
And when we like Lanolope Bell Farms, right? They were a big yeah. racehorse. They were like, trotters. Trotter. Okay. We were thoroughbreds. Okay. We spent 20 years breeding and training racehorses. Again, most of my entrepreneurial career has been bootstrapping companies. I never had a big backing, financial backing, because again, I learned that you don't need much money to start and grow companies. Money gets people in trouble. Right. When we decided to uh, start breeding our own, I started networking within the horse racing industry. So one of the things about networking is whatever business you're in at the time, you got to really develop an in-depth network in that industry. In that industry. So in country music, I developed a network with uh, artists and artist managers right. and radio stations and record companies. Sure, you need that for content, for right. advertising, right. the whole thing. And in the manufacturing companies with uh, plastic companies or and suppliers and industry associations and magazines. Right, you want to be tied into what's going on in the right. industry, right. right? I developed a robust network in the horse racing industry. We're looking for a female horse to buy to breed. Okay. You had all males? Was it Mostly males, but we didn't really have a good female. Okay. So I looked around. It took me a year to find one out of Belmont that was available for $1,500 from uh, a prominent racing family. So I went out and looked, and it was a three-year-old who had been injured. She had never run, would never run. The family and her mother had never really produced anything. So she essentially had very limited value. I looked at her. I looked at her bloodlines. I liked what I saw. I could see why she had had physical problems. But for $1,500, we weren't going to do much better. So we bought right. her for 1500 And it wasn't like the kind of physical stuff that was going to pass on to... Could, could have, but could I... Have. But I was hoping I could find stallions that would overcome that. Okay. So we bought her for $1,500, and then I spent some time looking for an inexpensive stallion. I found one down in Maryland that we could uh, breed to for $1,000. So we had a $1,500 female. Bred to a male for a thousand bucks, and you don't you don't buy the stallion; it's no, a stud just, fee, just for servicing the mare. Right. He impregnates right. your horse, and you pay right. him a thousand bucks. Thank you very right. much. Right. Okay, that, so that was the first baby horse that we raised, that okay. we delivered, raised in the okay. first baby horse that I ever trained off of Walnut Farm. And in her first year of running, she was ranked one of the top ten females in America. So she was making money. She was making money. Okay. And the mother that we bought for $1,500 turned out to be a half-sister to Secretariat. Really? He was born... How'd you figure that out? He was born after her from the he same was, mother. Ah, I see. Okay. So he was born three or four years down the road after our does that, does that increase her value? I eventually sold her for $250,000. Wow. The one that you paid $1,500 right. for. Right. Unbelievable. So again, crazy business if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur... You right. have to really get in-depth in your industry. Right. When Judy and I looked at going into that business, I said there's three parts to the business. First of all, the bloodlines, and we're not going to have enough money to compete with the wealthiest people in the world, getting to the best stallions. So we're going to have to be very creative in finding females and finding males to put together. Right. I said, so they have an advantage in the breeding end. We have our own farm, so I think we can raise horses just as good as anybody else because we can buy the same feed. We can find a good vet, a good blacksmith. Right. So I, I think it's neutral raising the horse from birth to when they get to the track. And I said, at the track, I'm just egotistical enough to think I'm going to have an edge over most of these trainers. Right. I think I'm smarter than the average right. racehorse trainer. Sure. So I think we're going to have an edge with me training our own horses. And that turned out to be the true and equation. And you never trained a horse I never before. trained a horse. Wow. So that turned out to be the true equation. 
Okay, and what about your dad's business? What happened to his business? I continued to run that for 10 years. Okay. Um, late 80s? Late 80s. Turned it into a pretty successful company from a regional 12 or 13 person company to an international company with over 125 employees, three locations. Wow, so you do business all over the world. All, all over the world. Okay. But that's a whole interesting story how I did that. Very early on, I knew that the world was going global, that we had to have a global presence. This is way before people talked about globalization. Right, sure. So my wife had worked for a small software company, and one of their sales guys was really a terrific guy. And the software company was struggling, so I hired Don Miller to join Killian Extruders as the sales first salesperson the company ever had. But he was in the software sales so, business? He software, was a salesman. Yeah. Knew nothing about the plastic industry or I mean, you're equipment. Salesman, it doesn't matter right. if you're a good salesman. So after he had been with us a couple of years... And the company had been stabilized. I took him out one night for dinner, and I said, Don, we've got to go international. And I said, so I think you should become VP of international sales for Killian Extruders and figure out how to do this. And he had only done stuff in the United States, right? Right, right. And he said, I wouldn't have the first idea of where to start. I right. said, me either. Okay. I said, but I think you should devote your time to figuring out how to start. Don started to look at trying to do things internationally. And again, I made a strategic cold call. Again, part of this networking skill that I developed. I figured who who could help me figure out how to take a small New Jersey manufacturing company global. So I called the U.S. Department of Commerce in Washington. Like I called the <laughs> of Department course. of Agriculture. But everybody would right. do. <laughs> so I got somebody at the Commerce on the phone, and I told them, I said, we're a small manufacturing company in New Jersey with a small operation in Florida. I want to start to expand globally. I have no idea how to do that. Do you have any resources to help companies like ours do that? I said, yeah, we could probably help you. He said, where would you like to start? I said, I don't know, maybe Mexico, because it's relatively close. This is like mid-80s? Yeah. Okay. He said, well, here's the name of a person at our embassy, our commercial attache officer in our embassy in Mexico City. Call him, explain what you're trying to do, and see if they can help you. And you were looking for customers to do business right. outside the United States, right. where you would provide custom equipment that you would right. create, then ship it to them. Right. Right. So Mexico, you're thinking there's companies down there that need... Yeah, well, just because it was close. Right, there was, you didn't have to cross any water. Right, right, okay. right. I could have gone to Canada. Yeah, Canada maybe. But I was already doing a little bit in Canada, so okay. I want to think outside the box. Okay. So I called this guy and I got him on the phone, and he said, what would you like to do? And one of my philosophies as an entrepreneur in every business I've been in, I like to create events to get potential customers coming to me, and I've done it. In every industry, I did it at country music and publishing. I put on publishing events as joint ventures with NYU. I did it in the horse racing industry where I put together events to attract new owners into the racing industry. So at Killian Extruders, I wanted to create events. So I told the people in Mexico at the embassy that I'd like to create a one-day event to talk about the American polymer processing technologies positioned as uh, experts from America coming down to share their knowledge. But I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know how to reach the plastic industry in Mexico. Could they help me? So we, we put together a deal where the embassy helped promote the event, 
that we this was going to be in Mexico. In Mexico City okay. at the embassy. At the embassy. Okay. They were going to host the event, pay for the food, pay to have simultaneous translations, and help spread the word in Mexico's plastic industry about the event. So we wound up with about 150 people coming to the embassy. Wow. To hear me and two guys from Killing Extruders essentially talk about what we're doing. Because we were on the early stage, cutting edge of things, because we were building custom equipment. Right. That really worked. You know, sometimes it's not how big or small you are, it's how big or small your thinking is. Right, like, totally. You are a small company, but right. you're thinking big. They don't know. They have no you're, idea. You're a company from the United States. You must be big. Right, right. It's right. irrelevant. And we're positioning ourselves through the embassy as experts. Right. As industry experts. Yeah. We wound up selling quite a bit of equipment into Mexico, but then we repeated the process throughout Latin America. So I did the same thing in Venezuela. So when okay. when I hear all the problems going on in Venezuela, I've been there. I can visualize that. Right. We did it in Uruguay. We did it in Bogota, Colombia. Did it in Panama City. And over a period of a few years, we started developing a really robust business. So South America and Central America. Central America and South America. Right. And in the process, we wound up taking on a couple of independent sales reps in these markets. Yeah. So now we're starting to build an international sales organization. In the meantime, as the company grew, we outgrew the space that we originally in had. In Verona. In Verona. Did you own that building? The business yeah, we owned the building. building. We eventually sold the building, rented a much larger space in Cedar Grove, 25,000 square foot space. A big facility. Big facility where we had a, a nice conference room. They came up with the concept of putting together one-week polymer processing workshops in New Jersey that we would conduct in Spanish by getting guys who worked in, in our factory who were Hispanic. Right. So they would come in and run. We'd do all of our slides in this, in Spanish. So you'd fly, these executives or whatever would fly in for a week? They would fly in for a week. company from Mexico or South right, America. Right. And we would charge them a thousand bucks a person for the week. Right. And we could accommodate about 20 people in a week. So we were grossing $20,000 a week. In very little cost. Very little cost. Lunches. They would pay their own airfare and hotel. Right. They became our sales force when they went back into their companies. They had spent a week with us. They knew our people. Right. They knew we could do business fluently in Spanish. Yeah, you spoke the language. So that became a strategy that that we used in other parts of the world. Okay. So after 10 years of running the company, I got approached by a British company, public British company. They were looking to uh, have a presence in the U.S. They were in the plastic industry. I had never really intended to be in the plastic manufacturing equipment business. My partner was about 15 years older than me. He was ready to bag it and retire. Norm, the guy from Florida. Norm, the guy from Florida. Right. It made sense for us to sell the company. Okay. So we sold the company to this British company. We both got a three-year employment contract to continue running the business. Right. I took a lot of the strategies that I used to grow Killing Extruders over to the British company. I went on the board of the British company. My partner did not, but I went on the board of the A British parent company. company. Parent company. Okay. We did 10 high-tech acquisitions in three years in three different categories. In the plastic industry was one category. Specialty industrial furnaces was another category. And specialty instrumentation was the third category. They're a big manufacturing conglomerate. They're a big conglomerate. Hot shot stock on the London Exchange. Okay. Uh, I I really had an impact on the company. So this was like late 80s going into the 90s. 90s. Okay. 
one of the lessons I learned at Country Music Magazine that I now have applied in every entrepreneurial venture I've been in, you have to have multiple revenue streams. So like back in the country music days, in addition to uh, getting income from selling copies of the magazine and advertising, we start publishing books. I probably published 40 books and to sell the books through the magazine. We created a weekly syndicated newspaper column through King Features. So we got money from writing a weekly column. We uh, partnered with Suzuki Motorcycles to do a once a week, one hour country music magazine in the air radio show that we syndicated on over 200 stations. Uh, we evolved into being pretty big in direct mail marketing and wound up producing our own records and tapes that we sold on television. With country music, we had seven or eight different revenue streams. You know, I think that's really, really good advice for people because... You know, there's one thing that you and I both know, and that's things always change. They never stay the same. They change because of things that are in your control. They change because of things that are outside your control. And there's no business that's ever been successful selling one thing or doing one thing. If they're successful, they've evolved. Maybe they've stopped doing one thing, started doing another thing. And I think that the business owners that are successful, like you know and I know, that's exactly what they do. They, they grow their business not just in terms of sales and one thing they do with those different lines of business, right. and it protects them against economic changes and global changes and all right. that type of stuff. That's really good advice for people. Right. With Killing Extruders, for example, uh, first of all, I, I decided Killing Extruders' business model was not correct. My father had started and grown the company based on being an equipment manufacturing company. That's what he did, a custom equipment manufacturing company. Yeah, they made the equipment that right. the plastics industry used. Right. Right. And that's uh, all they did. Right. That was their one line of business. Right. And I, and I thought that we didn't really have a big competitive edge, particularly with my father gone and his knowledge gone, because other competitors could buy similar components and put them together. So I thought we should really reinvent ourselves as a uh, polymer processing problem solver. So once Almost I Almost like a consultant, right? Yeah, you know, I could consult. So I needed multiple revenue streams. Right. So the first thing I started doing was these programs in other countries, and eventually these workshops in New Jersey were generating 20000 bucks on a cliff. So I started viewing education as a revenue stream. Right. And I started running conferences. So both educated people and sold what you did. Right. Right. Same sold time. what we did. And so didn't do it for free, which is, I think do, is important. Right. I also started doing two-day conferences in America on different polymer processing topics where I would charge people three, four, five hundred bucks to come to the conference and get a hundred or two hundred people coming to an event. Now, you're not an expert on polymer processing. No. You brought the experts in to speak, right? Right, right, okay. right. Were they people that work for the company or not necessarily? Some, some are company, but to give it credibility, I'd get speakers from prominent companies, right. from DuPont or Monsanto right. or J&J. So when we sent out the invitations, it wasn't just from... Killing extruders, those killing extruders and co-sponsors, right. those companies. And they get PR at They get PR. They, they exposure. Get, they get exposure. They're talking to a couple hundred people. Right. Works and then, for everybody. And then when my dad still owned the company, companies would call us and ask if they could come in and use our equipment to do some testing that they were working on before they bought right. our equipment. Yeah. So they were consuming a lot of uh, manpower on our part sort of see whether they could buy equipment from us. Right. So I decided to open a separate company called Killian Extruder Development, which was going to be a laboratory that companies could pay to use to do trial runs, test new products, new resins, 
So we opened that in New Jersey. I put it at another location so there'd be no confusion. So when potential customers call and ask if they could use our equipment, I, I could say yes. We have a separate development company. Call Keith Luker, the head of it. He'll be happy to work with you. So the labs became a revenue stream, and I eventually opened labs in New Jersey, Florida, and California as a separate company. So we're doing conferences. And you own 100% of that company. Owned 100% of that company. And if I had stayed with Killing Extruders and not sold it, I think I would have taken it into the publishing business. I think I would have started a polymer processing magazine to take advantage of my magazine. Right, like a trade magazine. Like a trade magazine. Yeah. As entrepreneurs, you need to be constantly thinking about how to diversify what you're offering. Because as Mitch says, things change. you got to be ahead of the curve. Right, absolutely. Going back to uh, the sale of Killing Extruders, after three years, I got a call that Thermal Scientific had been, that was the name of the buyer, Thermal Scientific had been approached about selling the whole company. They wanted me in London for the weekend to meet with the buyer and negotiate the deal because I was on the board. So at that point, they had bought Killing Extruders. You were on the board. You helped them acquire, you said, three or four companies. Ten now companies. Now they got a buyer of the whole business. Of the whole business. Okay. That's it's it. a public company, though, yeah, right? Yeah, public company. Okay. That's after my three years with them. So after. You had already finished the three-year contract. You weren't right with anymore. Right you were just the, on the board. Right on the board. I was, no, I was right at the end of finishing my three-year okay. period. So I flew over on a weekend. We right. met at Barclays Bank. We spent the weekend. We even slept in the facilities. Monday morning, we announced the sale of Thermal Scientific to a much larger multi-billion dollar British tech company. So then I'm off on my own. You know, You're out. You make I'm money a, on that deal? Or I, you made money, no, I made money on the deal. you had stock in Cause, it. Because when I sold Killing Extruders to Thermal Scientific, I sold it part cash and part stock. Ah. And the stock went up significantly during the three-year period I was there. And, and then if it they're went buying up, it, it's going to go up again. again. I was out looking for new things to do. So you walk away, you got a pile of cash now. You have no businesses anymore. What happened to the laboratory business? That all sold. That was all part of the sale. That was all part okay. of the sale. So you've now disgorged yourself of all the businesses you were running, and you're basically now you're really an entrepreneur looking for something to do. Yeah. Plus, I'm still in the horse business. Right. You have the farm and the oh, horses, oh, right? And I'm still doing that. Right. I'm still Which you did for years until yeah. recently, right? Yeah. Several years ago. Back then, I still had to be at the racetrack every morning, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And then you go off to whatever you were yeah, doing at the yeah. time. You so, a lot of energy, Jim. Right, still do. <laughs> Knock on wood. Right. I was looking around, again, using my networking skills. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, and one of the things I do now is I coach people how to network, including entrepreneurs, I recommend that you have at least seven in-person meetings a week. Deliberate, targeted networking meetings a week. That'll probably take you 10 or 11 hours to do. And I think you have to devote that amount of time to creating new ideas, new alliances, new new situations. So I started networking with people. And I ran across a very bright guy who I had worked with at McKinsey, Victor Schnee, who owned a company, a research company in the telecom space called Probe Research. Probe Research was doing work for major telecom companies like AT&T, the Bell companies. Right. And Victor, way ahead of his time, had an idea to start a new magazine for the corporate user to educate them about the new mobile and wireless communication technologies that were evolving. So just starting then, right? Just the mobile phone was just coming on. Just coming on. Right. We were probably six or seven years ahead of our time. But he asked me if I wanted to team up with him to start a magazine for that sector. 
So I said, yeah, but Victor was a really tough guy. He's really a brilliant guy. One of the things I learned is uh, I don't necessarily want to own a part of most small companies because most of them never really get bought out. Right. You're you're kidding yourself if you think you're going to monetize the equity. And I didn't want to be his employee. I didn't want to have that kind of role. So I proposed that I work full-time on launching a magazine, but as an independent paid consultant. So we negotiated a fee for me to do that. So uh, I helped Victor launch Wireless for the Corporate User Magazine. And I was the only person in the very early stages working on the magazine. And again, I knew nothing about the industry. No, but you knew the publishing. I knew the publishing business, but I knew nothing about the telecom industry. So again, I had to create a whole new network among all these companies like AT&T and Verizon. and Learn the industry to have the experts to bring in the content, to get the advertisers, the whole thing. Yeah. Right. But uh, it's really the same formula that you had used in many industries. That's why I think networking... And what you do and your experience is really valuable to people because it shows people that it doesn't matter what you do. The networking, the formula is the same, and it works if you are relentless and stay after people and do the same thing over and over. You're just repeating yourself. Right. The the biggest challenge I had in that business was just understanding the language of the business. Right. It's more technical than the other stuff you had done. And it's all acronyms. Like it took me months to understand what an ARBOC was. Okay. I kept be asking, no, what's an Arb- Arbach means regional bell operating company. It was a company that spun off from the It was an acronym for a baby bell, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you had been in the in the extrusion business. I'm sure you didn't know anything about polymers no, either, and no. you got to know that link. No. So whatever business you're in, you really have to devote yourself to understanding the business. Right. So I essentially turned myself into an expert in that industry. Right. In the magazine, I stayed with Victor with the project for four or five years. And we were really early, but we turned that into a very successful venture. Again, multiple revenue streams. So one of the things, because the industry was... Because uh, most publications make their money from advertising, right? right? Okay, so right. what are the other revenue streams you develop? There, because we we're, were essentially helping to create a new industry, and the corporate user of these technologies didn't really understand them. Right, and that's really who was using it in the early days, right? Yeah. Corporate guys, yeah. yeah. So we start, I developed a program I called it Executive Briefings. So we start running half-day executive briefings around the country and eventually in other countries. They're half-day seminars. Half-day seminars. learn about the technology. Right. Where we would let the end user come for free. We would have these at a hotel or university. The end user would come for free, the attendees. Right. And we could pack a room because the information was really critically important. And we would fund that by selling sponsorships to companies to speak at the events. They want to get in front of these people. Right. So we were. And they had the money. They had the money. Right. So we had no problem selling out executive briefings. And we would do typically eight or ten a year. And the best markets turned out to be Dallas, Chicago, and New York. The California markets were not good. Boston was good. We did a one-day full briefing specifically targeting the healthcare industry because these technologies were applicable for that. But you're saying the user base that was developing was more Dallas, Chicago, New York, not so much on the West Coast. Right. But we also tried Miami, Atlanta, Detroit. Wasn't as successful? No, but they they made money, but but the real home runs. We do do one in New York, we get 700 people come out. We'd have to break it up and do do half-day programs. Uh, and then we started publishing annual guides. So we would do an annual buyer's guide for wireless mobile communications. 
and we, like a consumer reports for the executives that reviewed these this, this equipment. Right. Okay. So the the guides were aimed at the end user, the corporate buyer. Right. But all the content came from the suppliers. So they would run a page of advertising. Maybe we'd give them two pages to, of editorial content. Right. So we could do an annual guide that grossed three three hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a review of this. You weren't testing the equipment. No. You were you were saying, okay, we have this. This forum. is what this is. People this come is, in and say, this is what we offer. This is what and we people have. Could read about it because it wasn't like the internet nowadays no. where you can search anything. No, no. You needed content. Right. You needed it was it, it was like the showcase of technology. Right. Okay. That so makes sense. so we had these annual guides. We had these briefings, and we started doing conferences. So I did a. Two-day wireless and mobile communication conference in Amsterdam, okay. for example, using European suppliers as the sponsors. So, again, multiple revenue streams. I was seeing all these exciting young companies that, that were developing these new technologies. So, I decided to take part of the editorial direction of the magazine in the direction of talking about these companies as investment vehicles. For people to invest for in people, telecom. For people to invest in telecom. Were they public companies? Yeah, them? a lot of them were small public okay. companies. Back then, it was the dot-com boom. Right, right. Things were so starting to average investor, you can buy stock. Right. Okay. To kick off that part of the magazine, I organized an event at the Yale Club in New York. Again, networking. Right. Uh, I called all the major Wall Street houses. Yale's over like a block and a half from Grand Central. Right. Right, right near the uh, Cornell Club. And uh, Vanderbilt Avenue. Okay, right. So uh, I called all the major Wall Street houses. I talked to them about who was their telecom analyst. And I put together a luncheon at the Yale Club with about 20 wireless and mobile communication analysts. Analysts mean guys in the investment business that were analyzing these companies. Right. Okay. So we put together like a 12-page section in the next issue of the magazine where we summarized the views of these analysts on what are the technologies that are going to emerge because there's competing technologies? What are some of the early stage companies that they like? Right. And that really started a whole different editorial yeah, trend. I think regulatory the compliance in those days was a little bit looser than it is now. It's probably a right. little bit easier right. to get that content. So, so then we started doing investor conferences in the technology space. Along the along the way, I met a woman from one of the major Wall Street firms. I went out to dinner with her, told her what I was doing. And she said, well, why don't we start a hedge fund to okay. invest in these companies? Right. I didn't even know what a hedge fund yeah, was. Yeah, that was the early days of hedge right. funds. So we talked for maybe five or six months, and we decided to start a hedge fund to invest in the technology sector, communication sector. Right. So we called that fund the Information and Communication Technology Fund. Meanwhile, I decided to get out of the publishing with uh, Wireless for the Corporate User and to go into the hedge fund business. They just sold out. I, I just I had built up a management team, which continued after I left. Okay. And eventually, he sold the magazine. Did you own part of that magazine? Or you no, just I, an employee. Just an employee. Just ah, an independent okay. fee-paid consultant. Okay. I got a piece of the revenue stream plus a fee. Right. Okay. We started this Information and Communication Technology Fund. It's really sort of the only partnership that I've had that didn't work the right way. And I learned some lessons. Putting together a partnership is, uh, you really have to be careful. You really got to set the rules up right so you don't, because we got more partners getting in trouble. They're not happy with the relationship. They can't change it. It's difficult. I picked the wrong partner in this situation. Right. Well, she kind of found you, didn't she? She, she, she found me. I was the access to the content. Right. 
she was she was a very well established advisor at a major firm with a high level position. I quit Wireless for the Corporate User Magazine to do this. Her husband was a doctor in New Jersey. He had an office behind his practice. So we set the fund up in this office behind her husband's medical practice. Right. And then she never quits her job on Wall Street. Unbeknownst to you or you knew that? I didn't know that. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Right. So by the time I quit my job to go into partnership with her, she's going to work on it like she was full-time. Right. But in name, she's not going to give up her job at the Wall Street firm and her clients at that firm. She puts her husband in as a surrogate partner with me. So now I'm partners with the husband doctor who has no interest or cares. Right. Yeah, because she couldn't own it with you without disclosing yeah. it to right. her company in New but York City. Meanwhile, she had been running her business for the Wall Street firm out of the same office space. Okay. So from her firm's point of view, there was no apparent difference. They didn't know anything. They didn't know anything. Right. I should have walked away, but I didn't do that. No, you got to be all in, right? Yeah. She would work there, but, you know, half the phone calls would be for her parent company. Right. And half the phone calls would be for our new company. Right. For our new fund. Right. We, we started just when the dot-com thing really took off. We started with capital from just, I think, uh, four of us. I think we started with $600,000 from four investors, me, her, and two friends. By the second year, we were on the cover of Barron's Magazine. And did you bring in other investors? Yeah. Or just we, we, at that point, you were... She, she was great in a rising market. She knew how to leverage capital. Right. And she was brilliant. She's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And she was brilliant in a rising market. Our performance just took off like crazy. Right. I think in the second year, we're the second highest performing hedge fund in the country, even though we're small. But we started to attract capital from other countries. Then the market turned. It started to go down. It corrected. Right. And I kept trying to convince her. Like to some dot-coms were blowing up yeah. and it was changing the business. And I, I, uh, one of the lessons I learned is that there are good money managers in rising markets and there are good money managers in declining it's markets. It's a different skill, isn't it's it? It's a different skill and different right. mindset. Yeah. Because in a rising bulls market. Bulls and bears, kind yeah, of. Yeah, bulls and bears. Right. She was great in a rising market. Right. Not good in a declining a market. A different way to make money in a right. declining market. Right. Right. So I kept trying to get us to go to cash until things calmed down. And she kept thinking every week was the bottom of the market, and she kept chasing it. So we wound up uh, losing 80% of the money. At the after end. you were that big, right? Uh, after we were that big. It was pretty discouraging. Our investors were discouraged. Some of them pulled out. Many of them didn't. So one of the things that surprised me is the resilience of investors. Yeah. They just won't change. So at the end of our third year, this wasn't working. And uh, she wanted to totally change the mandate of the fund. She said, I was never a technology expert. I'm a more balanced portfolio manager. We got to roll the money into a new fund, different mandate. And I, I just, I didn't want to do that. Right. I didn't see anything I could bring to that equation. So uh, we contacted all the investors. Most of them rolled money over into a new fund that she created. And, and I left. And one of the guys that was working with us said to me, why don't we start a fund of hedge funds? He had been like a staff guy at the technology fund. Right, that's where the Eagle Rock fund That's where, from. so so the two of us started the Eagle Rock Diversified Fund to invest in a portfolio of hedge funds. I thought this guy was going to be a great partner, so I made a mistake with a, with a woman as a partner. I thought this guy was going to be a great partner. He looked the part. 
He's like 6'2", good-looking, well-dressed, authoritative, had a good college education, naval officer, worked for a major retail company, had his own retail business for a while. On paper, he looked like the real deal. The first time I thought we were going to have a problem was when I met his wife. She was totally not up to speed with what we were doing. She had no clue. She had no clue. She had nothing she could really add to the equation. It was obvious she was going to be an anchor on him. He was not going to be able to spend the kind of crazy time I spend out meeting people, developing relationships. Right. So it wasn't like he had another job, but in no. terms of like going to a night event or a morning no. breakfast, she'd be like, how come you're not home? Right, right, right. Got to add, there's a support right. side so, of the relationship. So for other entrepreneurs, when you're looking for a partner, when you're thinking about a partnership, I recommend you spend some time with a partner's, potential partner's spouse. Right. Male or female. Right. You'll, you'll learn a ton. A lot of the dynamics. You'll learn a ton right. doing that. But the Eagle Rock Fund was was successful. Right. I just ended it in December. Right. After I, so for 18 years, Eagle Rock Fund. But he left early on, though. He left after a couple of years. Okay. Because in the first couple of years, we were working pretty hard, trying to raise capital and find funds to invest in. And he just wasn't having the impact that he should have had. And I really liked the guy. So I, I said to him, you know, there's some reason why you're not being successful. I have no idea what it is. And I even had people tell me, you know, there's no sense you sending him out to meet with me because he doesn't like spending time with people. Oh, well, and, you're and not I, a people person. And I, yeah, but he appeared to be a people. Appeared to be. I had never realized that. So I suggested he go see somebody who could counsel him. So he wound up going to a doctor, psychological thing. Oh, for therapy. For therapy. Okay. One day he shows up in my, my house with boxes of stuff. I said, what, what are all the boxes? He says, it's all my files. He said, I can't work any longer. I said, what do you mean you can't work any longer? He said, my doctor says I'm under too much stress. Not just for you, but just in, in general, in it general. work. In the meantime, his mother had passed away and left him some money. Okay, so he so, had some money. So he had a little cushion. He had right. cushion. So I said, you can't just walk away. Right. I said, everybody's under stress. Everybody has to work. Life. He said, my doctor really recommends that I not work. So I said, we can't just have you walk out. We got investors who put money in. I said, why don't I just continue to run the fund? You don't have to come in. You get straightened out. And when she says you're okay, come back in and we'll pick up again. Right. In the meantime, I'll run it. Right. Well, it's been 18 years. He never came back. So we did that for a year. Okay. I paid him the same as I was getting paid. Oh, okay. I would meet with him once a month to sign checks. Right. Because we had co-signatures. Uh, okay. I'd meet him in a diner, and I'd bring him up to date. And, and our, some of our investors would say, I never hear from Kirk. What's right. good? So I had to fudge what Kirk was doing. So after a year, I knew this wasn't going to work. So I, on one of our meetings at the diner, I took two one-page documents that I had drafted. And I said, Kirk, this, this is not going to work any longer. Here's two agreements. You can sign either one you want. One, you sign, you own the fund, you're running it, starting today. And buy you out. Just, no? I'll, I'll walk away. Okay. The other one. You, you had money in the fund. Though, I right? had money as an investor. So an investor, but you wouldn't run the fund. Anymore. Right. The other agreement is, you get out of the fund. I'll, and I'll continue to run the fund. And I've signed the book. But no money changing hands. No money changing hands. You can hands. either take it or you'll take it. Right. Okay. I don't care which one you do. Right. Okay. I said, but we got to resolve it today. He signed the one where he walked away. Okay. And, and, Probably and, what you expected him to do, right? I wasn't sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I, actually, I was hoping he was saying, let's not do either. Right. I'm I want to stay in this. I'm ready to come back to work. Right. That didn't happen. But it didn't happen. And, the, and from my point of view, the bad thing that happened 
is several of the early stage investors were his relatives. So when he pulled out, they, he pulled, pulled, out the they pulled out. So I continued to run the fund for 18 years on my own. Right. And I just stopped at the end of last year because I'm getting older. And our some of our investors were getting older and having to reclaim their money. And I've also got some health issues. And I didn't feel comfortable going out raising new money from new investors when I've got... Son of anybody really wants to take it over or run yeah, the fund or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. So you, what did you do? You disbanded the fund, sent checks back to everybody, sent, and that's it? At the end of 18, I sent checks back to everybody. In the meantime, I've been doing a couple of other things. Yeah, so let's get into that. So we've been talking for like two hours. <laughs> we probably could go for another hour, but I want to get into what all the stuff you're doing now. I'm interested in education. You've always been interested. Yeah, in I've taught at three colleges, Rutgers, Montclair State, and uh, Fairleigh Dickinson right, University. You still teach there, don't you? No, but no. I'm still involved. Okay. Uh, I still recruit for MIT. I run a, a networking group of graduates at the MIT Business School. In fact, we had one of our periodic dinner meetings last night. So like an alumni group locally for Sloan School graduates. Right. Okay. It's very successful for me. Okay. MIT thinks it's about the most successful alumni program that they have going on. So we're talking about me helping them expand it worldwide. So for about the last four or five years, my wife also is an entrepreneur. And she had a magazine for professional corporate women in New Jersey. And she also has a foundation to empower women and younger women in the state. It's called the Garden State Women Education Foundation. Yeah, wasn't it Garden State Women's Magazine? Was yeah. The magazine? Yeah. Right. Is so, it still around? Is it just no. a website now? No, it's a website and events. Okay. With the emphasis on the foundation. Early on, the foundation was providing scholarship support for inner city high school girls going to four-year New Jersey colleges. Again, multiple revenue streams. When Judy had the magazine, she would also do events, financial conferences for women, health conferences for women. I started doing half-day networking workshops for professional and corporate women, and we would charge them to come. I would be the freebie speaker for Judy, and we might get 50 to 75 women coming at a time, lawyers, accountants, bankers, business owners. And I did a few of those, and I got a call one day from uh, an accounting firm, Rothstein Cass, sure. asking me if I could put together a program to teach their women professionals how to network and develop client relationships. So from doing these little workshops for Judy, I wound up doing two years' worth of coaching with Rothstein Cass. Now, are they still around? they get acquired? They were still or around. They, they acquired other firms? No, no, they got acquired by KPMG. Ah, okay. Until they got acquired, I was doing thirty dollars to $40,000 a year of coaching with Rothstein Cass, initially with the women, and eventually it morphed into both men and women because the men heard about right. the program and they wanted to come in. So that got me into having an interest in coaching people how to network and develop relationships as a way to do uh, four things. Just impact their personal lives because the better you get at this, the more opportunities you create personally. Impact your family because the opportunities I've created for Judy and our son Jonathan through my networking are unbelievable. Right. Jonathan's only had two jobs out of college. He's been out 14 years. I networked him to both jobs. He's never looked for a job. Right. And he's, and he's doing great. Yeah, jumping so, all over the place. Yeah, he's had yeah. two jobs. So, so personally, you benefit, your family benefits, the organization you're working with benefits, and your career benefits. I now am spending a fair amount of time coaching people on how to develop these skills. Uh, I've been running workshops for people, in-person workshops. For the largest group, I did 200 lawyers at Brooklyn Law School. 
I've been brought in by companies like Colgate, Palmolive, J.P. Morgan Chase, Signature Bank. I've coached at maybe eight or nine universities, RPI, Drew, Rutgers, Fordham. And it's re- really not a skill that's, that's taught. I mean, no. I look, as a lawyer, and Harris Rothstein, real visionary in the accounting space, right. built a big firm. Most professionals do not know how to network. They no. go to their alumni events, and they don't know what to do. Uh, they, they have no know, idea. Yeah, no idea. They have no idea to follow up and to call people yeah. and build networks and stay in touch yeah. and all the stuff that we do on a regular right. basis. So I've really turned myself modestly into a real networking expert. I've written a book on the topic. The book is called Network All the Time, Everywhere with Everybody. That's my philosophy, and it's on Amazon, both in print and Kindle. That was your first publication. Uh, my right? first You're working publication. on a second. Now, Network All the Time is also your website? Yeah. So networkallthetime.com if they want to learn about yeah. you? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put links in the show notes to the book, That'd be the great. website, and all that type of stuff. That would be great. One of the recent programs I've developed to coach people is using Zoom, which is like Skype. Right. It's a video conferencing platform, right? right. Okay. So, so I'm now completing my second program, and the program consists of four one-hour sessions once a week for four weeks in a row, where I bring in groups of people from different locations, or they could be from the same location, but the two groups I've run so far are from multiple states, multiple companies. Right, but it's done remotely. It's done remotely, where everybody jumps on the computer. Right. The current program is Fridays from noon to 1 o'clock. It's a one-month program. It's a one-month program for an hour once once a week. The first one I think I did on Tuesdays. This one I'm doing on Fridays. And where do you find these people? You want to coach you through your, yeah, your networking? The, to get the thing going, I've got the word out to people I know. The first one I did was a freebie. So I had 12 people taking it as a freebie. Test it out. Test it out. out get, let me debug it. Okay. I had a managing director from Merrill Lynch in Boston. I had a real estate agency owner in New Hampshire. I had an ex-McKinsey person from New York City. I had a couple women business owners from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I had the head of marketing for a national law firm. Okay. So I think I had 12 people. That was every once a week for an hour, and it really went great. Nobody dropped out. At the end of the program, the marketing manager for the national law firm called me up and asked me if I could do a program for 10 or 12 or 13 of their associates in four different offices, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Washington. Go there. No, no to do, do it on late. Zoom. Okay. So I said, sure. I said, only it's not going to be a freebie. Right. I said, in the, did the freebie. in the first six months, I'm going to charge people $200 a person to go through the four-part training program. I said, in the second half of the year, I'm going to charge 500 bucks a person. So they can... And it's a set curriculum. For set curriculum for, that I put together. Right. It's, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So you follow your curriculum. Maybe they have questions or oh, totally. whatever. But it's very interactive. Okay. Because I'm switching between having the slides on the computers. Right. And bringing up their faces. Okay. And the most I can comfortably handle is 15 people, including me. Because of the platform and the faces and yeah. the slides and back and forth. Right. I understand. Right. Right. Uh, so I can I can coach 14 people at a time, either from one organization or from the same organization, either multiple locations at that organization or right. the same. In June, I'm going to do a four-workshop program with this national law firm, coaching 14 of their younger associates in four of their offices. And I'm sure it's going to change lives. It's going to change careers. Right. Now, is this something that you're doing for the general public? Like, if somebody goes to your website, networkallthetime.com, 
Is there information on there where they can sign up? For not, a, not yet, not but, yet. I'm, but I'm going to be putting Still in the developmental stages. Okay. I'm going to be putting Is there a there. way on your website to um, register for your mailing list or your newsletter? Yes, or yes, yes. So if they register, then they'll receive information yeah. when this is rolling out. Yeah. So if anybody's listening out there, you want to interact with Jack, get on his list early, and then as this right. starts to roll out, you'll be one of the first right. people to participate in uh, in all this stuff. And, and the real benefit, and I'm getting great reviews. One of the things I've done in the networking space is I've developed what I call the NQ survey, which is a way to assess a person's networking and relationship development skill level. Okay. So I get people to take it before the program and after the fourth workshop. And the result of the first group that I did, it was like a 45% improvement in their abilities as right. a result of taking my they, they now understand how important this is, sure. how to do it randomly, how to do it by targeting, how to network at events, how to network in groups, how to network online with LinkedIn. Right. So I get into all aspects of this. You know, it's, it's interesting and it's a little funny. It's like to us, it's, it's intuitive. Right. You know, because of course I would do that. But a lot of people, they don't, they do don't it. get it. And, and then, you know, I, I also think a lot of the online social stuff, people nowadays, especially teaching them, they don't realize that they can connect outside the meeting too. You right. know, uh, there's a new feature of LinkedIn where you can literally find the person standing next to you and link into them right there. That's and awesome. a lot of people don't even have business cards um, anymore. They just want to link in and you get connected and they find out about stuff. One of my advices to everybody is always have your business cards with you. Right. There was a woman uh, graduate from the MIT Sloan School at the meeting last night. Uh, really a brilliant woman. No business Sitting cards. next to me. I gave her my card. I said, could you have your card? She said, I don't have a card. Right. I said, you got to have a card. I know. How am I ever going to get back in touch with you? Right. So if they don't have a card, you can go on LinkedIn right, right there and link into them. So right. at least you're connected that way. Right. Um, now, you also were getting into, you were working on a second book? Yeah. But let me just, one other point about this uh, group, oh, good. Okay. group uh, coaching program. Good. One of the reasons I did it is it now gives me the ability to coach worldwide. Right. And not I'm, having to fly to Dubai or wherever or, you're going. Or right? them flying in to right. see me. Sure. So I'm currently talking to a British company headquartered in London. Okay. I coached in person their New York staff last year. Now I'm talking about coaching their London staff remotely, you, remotely for 200 bucks a person. Right. Well, then it's, it's inexpensive so, for them, and right. you don't have to fly you over and put you up in a hotel for a week. Right. Sure. So, or even that, it's every four weeks. They have to fly in four times. Right. So the reason I have a week in between is because I suggest exercises that they practice in the weeks in between these sessions. Homework. So that, you know, I don't call it homework. No, but it is. It's, but, but you got to do the work. You got to, you got to, right. you know. It, it's very interactive. I have them do an evaluation at the end of the program, and I'm getting absolutely great feedback. Right. Indispensable. Well, sounds real promising. What, what was your question? You're working on a second book, you were told. I'm, I'm working on a second book. I'm about 80% done. Okay. The working title has been there, done that. I think it's a great title. Because I've been there and I've done that. Right. It's uh, taking each part of my life and identifying the key lessons I learned that apply to businesses and entrepreneurs. Like, what did I learn in the horse racing business that applies to other business leaders? Could apply to Bill Gates as well as to an entrepreneur. What I learned in country music that every business leader needs to know is you have to have multiple revenue streams. Right. What I learned through Killing Extruders, one of the things I learned there is it's important to pick the right partner. I right. picked the right partner. Right. Sometimes Nor we don't. A lot Nor of people don't. Right. Um, I, I think so. If anybody signs up either for our mailing list at vinelaw.com or your mailing list network all the time, 
they will get a notice when the right. book's released, right? right? Right. Okay, so that's a good way to stay in the loop. So I take each each stage of my life. What did I learn at Yale? What did I learn at McKinsey? What right. did I learn in the Army? One of the key lessons I learned in the horse racing industry that every entrepreneur and business leader, I think, should pay attention to is uh, to trust your gut. Because in most businesses, if you make a decision and you sort of are queasy about it, you don't feel totally comfortable. Right. You can correct it somehow. Fire the wrong person or change the terms of the deal. In a horse racing business, if you make a judgment that you basically know could be not right, what you can wind up doing is killing the horse. Right. And at the racetrack, I had three horses get killed because basically I made a bad decision. Really? You know, that's irreversible. Right. Um, Devastating. It's costly yeah. financially. It's costly emotionally, yeah. right? Yeah. So so yeah. I learned from that to do a better job of trusting my gut. Right. So if I sort of see a business opportunity like I see a business opportunity in coaching people on networking, you know, I'm going to pursue it because my gut tells me there's a need because I'm meeting so many people who don't have these skills. Well, Jack, uh, we've been doing this for about two hours. I think it's probably going to be a two-part episode, um, but I want to thank you for sharing all of your your knowledge and your wisdom and your thoughts about what businesses you wouldn't do, you know, solely owned businesses, things about building revenue streams, networking. I encourage anybody listening to go to Jack's website, to get on his email list, to learn about what he's doing, to get the book, and uh, maybe we'll buy a bunch of your copies and give some of them away when they come out of the new book. That'd be great. And we'll get this out to our mail list. So thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. We're friends, so we'll be having eggs and bacon together most months. (laughs) And uh, if anybody has any questions... Um, for Jack, what's your what's your email? Jack at networkallthetime.com? Yes. Okay, and that'll also be in the show notes and the, and the transcript. If you like the podcast, please tell others about us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Amazon Music, and many of the other podcast directories. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review and feel free to share our episodes on social media. If you have any questions or comments, ideas for the show, or you'd even like to appear as a guest, reach out to us by email at info at beinhackerlaw.com. The Accidental Entrepreneur is hosted and produced by me, Mitch Beinhacker. If you'd like more information about my legal services, you can find me on social media or visit my website at beinhackerlaw.com. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our feed to be notified of all future episodes.